Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Now a podcast. Now a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Man, why don't more movies pull the 15 minutes of Isabella Rossellini trick? That feels like a card yes. to play. All like that one movie a year should play that card. Yes. Uh, uh right? more movies should should offer up 15 minutes of Isabella Rossellini wearing only jewelry. Her her costume <laughs> is made out of various bangles. Like how has Nolan never been like, you know, who should do this exposition? Isabella Rossellini. Like, you know what I mean? Like someone like that, like just brings who's better. Just bring her in. She'll just explain some shit. And you'll be like, that was a very classy and sensual explanation. Thank you. I'm very involved. I I think it was uh enemy where she's got like a couple really good scenes as Jill and Hall's mom, where I was like, Oh fuck. Major filmmakers are going to start utilizing Isabella Rossellini mm. in this capacity now. And then that wave didn't happen. There's joy. You can't, she's got that great scene in joy where she's like, I have one rule in business. Remember she has like a crazy monologue in joy. Oh, a crazy monologue that has nothing to do with what happens in the rest of the movie. Like yes, so that's many what that whole movie is. That whole movie is just scenes where you're like, wait, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> joy is fascinating because somehow it defies space and time and that no scene has anything to do with any other scene in the movie. Or <laughs> characters no or actors no, or no. anything. It, it feels like watching New York, I Love You. Like, somehow it's an omnibus movie of 22 short films <laughs> all made by the exact same director, cast, and crew. <laughs> but that's the only movie that I can think of that that did what you're talking about, Post yeah. Enemy. Like, was like, oh, yeah, we'll bring in Rossellini for two scenes. That'll be no, great. you're right. It's like, look, I have not seen Tenet because I don't want to die, uh, and I don't have a car, but... Sure, um, that's, that's the main issue, right. But I could see Isabella Rossellini being the one who does what, uh, why am I forgetting her name now? Uh, who I love, the French actress. Uh, Clement, uh, Jesus. Clement Posey. Yeah, it is Clement Posey, right. Yeah. There's her. Yeah. There's another character played by, um, her name is uh, Dimple Capadia, who is like uh-huh. a, she, she, she is the Isabella Rossellini role. Now that the person that he cast is actually good, but. Uh, you know, an older lady who is worldly and knows about such things and, you know, can tell you about things over a glass of wine like Ben Hosley. Yes. Cheers. Ben is drinking wine. He's got a glass of vino in front of a Zoom background of Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep's upside down decaying heads. <laughs> uh, and he's wearing congratulations tea. He looks uh, very classy. I am a very classy guy. I got to say. I could see why she had this like the prolific modeling career. She is just such a striking looking person. She's really an incredible guy. face. Like, um, I, I don't know enough about her like film career. I only really know her in Blue hey. Velvet. You know, I, Blue I Velvet, think this right. is the first time she's come up. We might have to unpack Rossellini. There's one other big blockbuster movie using Isabella Rossellini to add a little gravitas that you have forgotten, David. Like of recent note or oh, it's from a while. I know ago. where this is going. Is, I see this. Do you know where this is going? Katie? I'm, I'm on IMDb. So yes, I see it. As ambassador Henrietta Selick in the incredible scale. 
Thank Yes, that's a very good point. Yes, yes. I mean, I, again, I'm looking at her IMDb now. She's done two voice performances in her life, and the other one is in a movie called My Dog Tulip that looks like sort of an independent animated film. Like, mm. she's got one of the most famous dang voices. Yeah. Bring her yeah. in. She was on the cover of Vogue, like, like, many months in a row like it was oh, crazy. things she well we're into it i mean well we'll get more into it but like when you're not only a famous and beautiful actress but you're also the child of a famous and beautiful actress and the manner of your birth was famous like that you yeah. know there was this like gripping affair and all that yeah i mean you're gonna have to be on the cover of vogue like 12 times right. like that's just gonna have to happen like daughter of like like golden Mount Rushmore Hollywood star, right? right. And firebrand political, like neorealist filmmaker, born right. out of a scandalous affair. She becomes yes. a world famous model, marries two of the biggest directors of the 20th century. That's true. I think she never married own- Lynch, but whatever, you know, like Did she not? I think they were dramatically partners, with you know, whatever. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Engaged to Gary Oldman. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. She was with Gary Oldman for a bit. Yeah. Um, but then also, yes, like world famous model, uh, started her own uh, cosmetics company. You must remember this did a really good Isabella Rossellini episode talking about all the aspects of her life that don't get discussed. And one of them was that she tried to revolutionize the cosmetics industry, standing up against what she thought was... Uh, you know, like uh, big corporations owned by men trying to push different standards of beauty on women in order to sell products. And she was trying to upend it by saying, like, I want to make high quality things with better materials that set a better standard of what women actually want, rather than trying to sell them an idea of what they should want. And it didn't totally work, but it was like this very admirable uh, failure. Can I say the one thing that we haven't brought up that used her properly? Uh, two episodes of 30 Rock. Really early 30 Rock episodes. Oh, uh, where she she's Jack's so, ex-wife. She's the Arby's so joke. funny. Yeah, uh, you, lo- you know I love my big beef and cheddar. It's the, no, I love my big yeah. beef and cheddar. It's the funniest line in the first season of 30 Rock by far. It's There's a lot of famous people who are in the first season of 30 Rock who don't come back. Like Nathan Lane is Jack's dad. And like they did what they needed to do. The right. show got better. But I, I don't get what happened. I don't get why they didn't keep bringing her back. Her and, and Broderick. Broderick's performance in 30 Rock, those two episodes or whatever. Oh, you know, yeah. The episodes Cooter? Were, the the Bush Cooter. administration Cooter. forgotten, yeah. like, half like, child. My Matthew Broderick has given good performances and has had a, yeah. a, a long and varied career and is a, um, he's obviously worked on stage, producers, you know, he's done, might be his singular, that's like his best work is Cooter. I'm, and I'm not even being sarcastic and I'm not even being patronizing. It just makes me, his little face makes me laugh so much <laughs> in that stupid episode where he, he like, is it Donaghy like pulls off the, the lampshade and there's a candle <laughs> instead of a light bulb. There was, there was a, a, a crew member on the tick who Peter Serafinowicz one day pulled me aside and said, I don't want to sound mean. And I, I really think he's a lovely guy and very good at his job, but I come to this realization. I need to share it with someone because it drives me crazy. Do you not think that blank 
looks like a little boy who's been dressed up by his parents for Easter. <laughs> and, and, and I couldn't unsee it. And Broderick has some of that energy. Like now that he's gotten older and he's gone grayer, he's still just the way he combs his hair and the way he wears his little sweaters. And as you said, David, his little face, like he went from being Ferris Bueller, like the awesome, like cool team war games, like the kid fucking with the institutions to now looking like a little boy who's dressed up <laughs> Easter services. Right. I assume Peter Serafinitz was right. Like that's a dead on description of this guy. It it, it was it was a brutal, brutal murder. <laughs> it was, and he bodied this guy. Dead he in a him like ditch. Yes. Yeah, yeah, dead in a ditch. David's new favorite phrase. Hey, listen, what what is this we're talking about here? This is a loose fun episode, I can tell. With an old fave. And we're connoisseurs of context. All this is relevant. We're establishing context. Because this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. And the podcast is about filmographies. It's about directors who had massive success early on in their career and are given a series of blank checks and whatever crazy passion projects they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce down the stairs and you you think they're dead and then they come back up and then they end up being an excuse to try out a lot of new special effects techniques. This <laughs> <laughs> is a mini series on the films of Robert Zemeckis, the infamous Bobby Z. And today we were talking Death Becomes Her, which I realized I, I've been making a mistake for almost every episode of the podcast so far where I say that I've said that flight and used cars are the only two R-rated movies that Bobby Z. Ever oh, made. sure. You forgetting keep forgetting about this one. Right. right. No, oh, no, oh Allied. Right. Oh, yeah. Allied. This was a PG-13. Right. Allied is already. Yes. Allied has has fucking, you know? It has sex. Unlike, you know, like some grown-ups having sex with each other. But these are two things I want to say. Mm-hmm. One, I, I might be hoisted by my own petard making this statement as well, but I would categorize this as Robert Zemeckis's last proper comedy. I think he makes movies with comedic elements after this. And watching Forrest Gump, we were like, oh, that's more satirical than we remembered. But I think his lightest movies after this point are family films. They're they're not comedies, first and foremost. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, honestly, The Witches... I guess might be a comedy like that seems comic in tone, but I don't think he's made a film that you could call a comedy since this Gump. Right. I mean, but Gump was Gump was a drama at the Globes, right? Like that's received as a drama received as a drama. I I just think it's a thing we've covered before on this show. Tim Burton's another example for me of like someone who comes out of the gate and is like a comedy director first and foremost, and then starts to get caught up in the trappings of other stuff. And with Burton, it's just sort of like the size, the machinery, the art direction, the intellectual property, you know? And with Zemeckis, it just like, I mean, partially it's the the special effects wizardry, but it also is a little bit, I think, of what we talked about in our used car episode. The like, I want to be taken seriously, you know? I, I want to be, uh, you know, a, a, a yes. serious adult filmmaker. I don't want to be seen as childish. I think it's the same as the Spielberg thing. Even when he's making like, you know, populist movies, they're edgier because he doesn't want to be seen as the amblin cute sort of uh, Yes, he wants to shed his family right rep. 
that makes sense. Um, introduce our guest. You introduce the show. Introduce our guest. And then I have a question I want to ask. Our guest today, one of our favorites. One of the best. Returning for the sixth time? Because last time was the five-timers. Uh, right? Yeah, that was the momentous moment. And now here I am just, you know, I don't know what you just get for the sixth in. anniversary. Just pop it in. It's easy. It's chill. You get, you get, you get the gentleman six, Kate. Yeah. Oh, right. Gentleman mm. six. I couldn't be happier. It's tough to make the five, but you don't really become a gentleman until you're six. <laughs> 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 Ladies and gentlemen, from Little Goldman, Mother of, Mother of Charlie. Mother of Charlie. And Sam. And Sam. <laughs> I guess I, I guess Sam hasn't been on the show. Sam so hasn't been on the podcast. He's gonna right, right. I mean, we're just gonna have to wait until he's, you know, eight and you guys have, you know, I don't yeah. know which miniseries we'll be doing at that point, and then I'll have both kids on um to share their opinions. Yeah. Uh Sam Sam doesn't have his own Blankopedia page yet. Whereas I think <laughs> No, although maybe I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I, I, maybe this is how he gets it. He doesn't have movie taste yet, so I, I can't Ooh. get. I can't endear him to to the masses yet. Uh, it's just Elmo right now. Because because Charlie seems to be naturally a cinephile. He yeah, he likes movies. Like we used yeah. to go to the movie theater together, which I loved and was like yeah. looking forward to continuing to do. And like obviously, it's not going to happen for a while. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's been watching. He watches a ton of crap like netflix is crammed with terrible kids movies do not get me wrong Netflix. Uh, yeah i mean there's some good show. there's good stuff You're on there kidding. i can sure. tell you about the good kid stuff on netflix i don't know how many parents listen to this show but like storybots rules um but disney plus has been very helpful to us we've been watching fantastic mr fox and lilo and stitch rock solid is fantastic mr fox on disney plus it's on Disney Plus. Yeah, it's a. Is that it's is a, it because it's it, Fox Searchlight? Or it's whatever, yeah. Or no? I I don't yeah. know how we got lucky enough to have it on there, but it works out. That's funny. Uh, also, yeah. obviously, Toy Story four and Forky, uh, forever. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Oh, you know what? It was just it was just Fox. So he's still down with Forky. He's still. Oh yeah, we're still down. Yeah, yeah we yeah, like yeah. rotate the Toy Stories in and out. Uh, I mean. He got this book from school that's like a lift the flat book where like it has a picture of the thing and then it shows you the word on the other side. This is like a common kid thing, but it was a Disney book. So it's all Disney characters. And the number mm-hmm. of Disney characters he recognized on site was terrifying. Mm-hmm. Creepy. Uh, yeah, he just knew uh, all of them. Like for like like characters I did from movies I didn't realize he'd seen like Baloo and the Jungle Book. Like, yeah, it goes deep, man. That's what I Guys. was like. That's, that's uh, a young Griffin Newman thing, yeah. right? Absolutely. I, I got some bad news for you, Katie. There might be an ominous future lying ahead. Of You're looking at Charlie's future? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let um, me see. I'm looking into the future. I'm looking at my crystal ball. Okay, so Charlie's podcast is going to do well. That's yeah, good that's good. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's great. Very valuable collection of action yeah. figures that, uh, you know, he'll sell someday yeah. to fund something. Absolutely. Uh, romantic relationships, they might need some work in that area. <laughs> that's where I come in. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You just need you just need Katie to fix your steer your him in the up. right direction. Today we're talking about Death Becomes Her, which is a fucking buck wild movie. Oh it man, really is. it is wild. Really is. This movie is like your kooky divorced aunt. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Absolutely. This movie smokes Capri cigarettes. It's got long fingernails. It's it's wow. It's wild. I, I found the threads. I have my readings, but I, I still have a hard time keeping this movie in my head as a Zemeckis movie. Like it just doesn't click there. The, and I remember, best, like, go ahead. No, what are you gonna say? Your thought. Well, just the way 
it clicked for me as a Zemeckis movie is when I realized like, oh, it, it's a Looney Tune. Like it's yeah. it's mm. Roger Rabbit adjacent. That's where I see him the most. Yeah. Like that that that's where because it is crazy that this is essentially an iconic queer film of the nineties, directed by Roger Roger, Jesus, Robert Roger Zemeckis. Rabbit. <laughs> directed by Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Listen to the words coming out. Directed by Robert Zemeckis, who I do not want to tell tales out of school, but strikes me as an excessively straight person. Like I have, that's, yes. there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I, the guy doesn't really like, you know, scream like I've got a queer classic in me when, you know, when you're looking at interviews. Of him. He is your dad's friend who tinkers in the yeah. basement. Exactly. Absolutely. Like maybe he has some, some Hawaiian shirts, you know, that, that's, that's, that's about as flamboyant I mean, as he's going to get. Katie, you were talking about uh, uh, your sons and your setup at your home before we recording. Zemeckis feels like a suburban dad who has a train table. Does he yeah. not? But like a big he ass train like table. Not, like AstroTurf on it and stuff. Basement. Oh, yeah. Right. right. Like Will Ferrell in the Lego movie, but with the train. That the yeah. Kids can't yeah, where it's just in, right. intricately like every single tree, all the little shops. Like he feels like he has like a Beetlejuice town model. Now the question for Zemeckis, yes. and like this might be what we get into with the actual context, but like, do we credit the screenplay for all of the like queer classic sensibility that's in? Absolutely, the screenplay by uh, let me check notes. David Kep, <laughs> that's what I mean, and Mar- everything. And Martin yeah. Donovan, who is a little more of a, you know, he's he's probably it, it, where that's coming his from. His script bit. originally kept does right. the Zemeckis right. rewrite. We'll right. dig right. into right. it. Right. But for me, it's like I remember in like high school when I started really becoming obsessed with like viewing things as part of careers. TLA video, which I talked about, had their movies organized by director. And I remember seeing Death Becomes Her on the Zemeckis shelf and going like, was this put here accidentally like <laughs> a i hadn't heard of it like i feel like in 2002 or whatever when i saw the the vhs sort of case, a forgotten like, derided film yeah, or maybe not derided not, totally right. but for yeah yeah and and we were talking right before recording movies that like get bumped up a star on netflix which are sort of like the you know the uh heir parents to movies that would get bumped up a star on tbs or tnt or comedy central and I feel like this was not a movie that was in that regular cable TV rotation, even though it feels like that kind of movie. So I saw it on the shelf and I was like, was this put here accidentally? And then I looked at the back and I was like, are there two different directors named Robert Zemeckis? Is this a different Zemeckis? Because everything about this just feels like, oh, this is Barry Sonnenfeld directing a Paramount production of a Paul Rudnick script. Like you look at the front of the box and if someone had you guess what it is, you're like, right. Scott Rudin produced this, Rudnick wrote this and, and Sonnenfeld directed this. That feels right. like what it is. And Sonnenfeld does feel right. Yeah. It's, it's Zemeckis and otherwise pretty much all the above the line team that went on to do Jurassic Park the next year. Like it's, Right. Same DP, ILM has credited a lot of the breakthroughs that they did on this movie as yep. preparing them for Jurassic. It's the same production designer. Like it's yep. like all the same people go over Jurassic with Spielberg plus John Williams. Are, are Zemeckis and Spielberg still bros at this point? Oh, oh for yeah. sure. I mean, 
when Zemeckis, as we briefly talk about in the next episode, uh, when Zemeckis wins for Forrest Gump, which is two years from now, you know, from this movie, Spielberg presents the director award. Uh-huh. And Griff, I rewatched it and he says, uh-huh. he opens the envelope and he says, Alex, your dad just won an Academy Award. He's speaking to <laughs> oh. Robert Zemeckis's son. <laughs> That's like, that, that is like a true, like, this guy's my pal. It's yeah. like, I'm on first name's yeah. terms, first it's name's like terms a, with his son. It's uh, like a sequel to Max Spielberg, <laughs> the director of Jaws 19 in yes. Back to the Future 2. Right. He's getting right, him exactly. back. <laughs> Sending out messages to each and, other. Son. And then Zemeckis takes the stage and is like, the first person I want to thank is Steven Spielberg. Thank you for believing yeah. in me. You know, like it begins with right. him thinking like, so they are very much still bonded at the hip. I think it's also, I mean, it's fascinating to me that like Dean, uh, Cundy, who was such, such a big cinematographer for such a long while, but was really and huge for Zemeckis. Zemeckis I mean, he, yeah. Right. But like he, you know, he does like uh, B movies Like Carpenter kind of like legitimizes him. And then there's the, Zemeckis, like Romancing the Stone, Back to the Future, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future 2 and 3, uh, you know, with like Big Trouble and Little China in between Roadhouse and stuff. And then yeah. after that, Spielberg just pulls him for like two movies. He pulls him two, for He just did Hook and, and Jurassic. Right. Oh, oh, oh you, I'm and, sorry. And Jurassic. That's what I mean. Right. Yes. With, with then, this movie in between, then he stays in the Amblin Zone. He does like Flintstones and Casper. Apollo 13 is like his last great work. I mean, uh, excuse did, me, the uh, parent trap. He did shoot the yeah, parent excuse trap. Me, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and holiday. <laughs> um, excuse me. Krippendorf's tribe. <laughs> yeah. Krippendorf's tribe is the, is low key. The most bananas film released by a major studio in the history Absolutely. of, of the nineties, at least. And you know, the premise of Krippendorf's tribe. Do, Do I know, know the, the premise present? of premise? this movie? No, I know you know the premise. I want to, I've seen it. it. Okay. I've seen it too. I saw it in theaters. Is this a Fantastic Beast? <laughs> a Krippendorf? Yeah. Fantastic Beast and Krippendorf's Tribe is the third movie. No, the I Crimes don't of Krippendorf. <laughs> the Crimes of Krippendorf. Uh, it's a movie about uh, an anthropologist played by Richard Dreyfus who has failed to find a lost tribe in some, you know, he's journeyed into New Guinea or whatever. And he instead just makes up a tribe and like shoots a fake documentary with his family playing tribe members. And like, is like, Oh, and they do this and they do that. And he becomes super famous because of it. And like, so it's one of those like comedies where there's a lie that has to be revealed in the third act. It's the worst. It's Disney made it. He has to keep creating new mythology and finding new videos of this tribe, which are just his kids in a suburban backyard. And we must see these are his white, his white kids. His, his white kids. He covers them in mud and puts like feathers in their he hair. He also falls in love with Jenna Elfman, who he is like 25 years older than. Like, it's not like a, a small distance. In age. Yeah, if you look at the poster uh, for this movie, I think like every, the poster's canceled, IMDb's canceled for hosting the poster. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> yeah. it's over. Right. Yeah, you have to watch Kripp- Krippendorf's tribe using like a VPN. Otherwise, like, <laughs> right. if, groups are going to crack down your right. internet. If, if I watch, if I rented it from like a video store and then like I was nominated to be like Secretary of Defense, like the senators would be yeah. like, 
Uh, we looked at your blockbuster history, Krippendorf's tribe, and I'd be like, I, I, on advice of counsel, I will not answer the question. Wait, is it on Disney Plus? Absolutely not. No Disney <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in the Disney negative zone. It's not in the Disney vault. It's in the Disney tomb. Do you remember when Chris Hansen did that special, David, that was called Dateline to catch a person wanting to rent Krippendorf's tribe? <laughs> and they set up I a mean, fake blockbuster. The only problem was no one ever did it. That was the only yeah, issue. No, no one actually no rented one. the movie. <laughs> right? no they built sure. this blockbuster. They hired an actor to pretend to be the employee. And he was there with his stack of notes ready to go. So what were you planning on doing tonight? What movie were you thinking of renting? And they all come no, in. They're like, it. Flubber. And he's like, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, take it. I Jesus. guess you're safe. Technicality. <laughs> Technicality. I guess he also shot The Holiday. You know, he became... Uh, a Nancy Myers person because he shot Home Again. He shot uh, her well, daughter's movie. Home Again Back was to like Dean the Cundin. last last major movie he shot. Because Home Again, Home Again is now a major movie. Is that what we're? Uh... I mean, <laughs> can I can I list the the six films before Home Again, Katie? Slamma <laughs> yes. Jamma, The Girl hey. in the Photographs, Diablo, Walking with the Enemy, Crazy Kind of Love. And then before that, what I would say is his last major film is Jack and Jill. Dunkachinos. Someone had to capture that. Yeah, he shot the Dunkachinos. So, you know, we stand. But, but like, he was such a big deal. He kind of defined the next, like, three years of blockbuster cinema with his aesthetics. Yeah. And much like Vilmos Zygmunt like ended his career shooting 10 episodes of the Mindy pod project. It's very odd how he went from being like big, 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 bigger. And then he sort of gets ghettoed into like, Oh, now you, you hire him. If you want to do a movie where you have to combine live action and animation, like he becomes the specialist for that. He does Garfield Mm -hmm. and Looney Tunes back in action Nancy Myers is still hiring him to do like rom-coms. And then he just sort of like falls off a cliff. He, he did a Scooby-Doo TV movie. He did Camp Rock, the Disney Channel original movie. Like yeah, it's that very, iconic. very odd. And he only directed one film ever, the direct-to-video, Honey, We Shrunk Ourselves. Oh. That's right, which I have seen. It's when they shrink themselves. Yeah. That's the third one, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's post-blew up the kid. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, someone punched Moranis, man. That was fucked up. That was, that was fucked up. I was mad to hear what about that. What the hell, that. man? So fucked up. I hope that dude gets locked the hell up and then shrunk into a mini jail. Mm, oh. And then uh, poured into a bowl of Cheerios and then eaten by yeah. his own dad. By Rick Moranis. Really? Yeah. Grandpa Rick Moranis. Yeah. Moranis' revenge. The wildest shit was that the news reports were like, oh, Rick Moranis was attacked. And the photo they use of him is from like the 80s. Because yeah. like oh, no yeah. one even thinks what he looks like now. He was David, in that he like, was cell in phone a commercial. Yeah, with Ryan Reynolds. I, Griff, Griffin, 
Griffin, I'm aware that he was in a mid-mobile commercial. I didn't want to talk about it. It wasn't like a thing I wanted to revisit in my memory palace, but it's with I'm not Ryan Reynolds, correct? Yeah. He's like the is owner it, of is mid-mobile. Is mid-mobile Canadian? Yes. Is it? Yes, exactly. I want to get your opinion on this, Katie, because okay. I was ranting about this. David and I were, were talking about this with some friends the other day. I feel very strongly about this. What is this fucking trend of all movie stars and celebrities also at a certain tier when you become like an A-lister, suddenly feeling like you also need to be a venture capitalist? Why does Ryan Reynolds own Mint Mobile? Ryan Reynolds, you're a movie star. That's the coolest fucking job that anyone can ever have. Make movies. Don't fucking buy a cell phone company and a majority share of a soccer team. And a gin company. Wait, what is all this shit? Why because George Clooney walk? made like a literal billion dollars selling his tequila company. And they're like, okay. It's Clooney. But you know what? Clooney when Clooney did it, it was cool. You're not George Clooney. It's like yeah. a Jack Kennedy line. You know, it's like, I serve yeah. with George Clooney. <laughs> like, Ashton Cooker, Kutcher doesn't have to work because he invested money in like Twitter or whatever. Like, See, that's fine. Why is Ashton Kutcher on Shark Tank? Why does he get a chair? He's not a fucking shark. Yeah, he's making a ton of money. He invested it all well. If you want to quietly invest in like Beats by Dre or whatever and just quietly make a hundred million dollars and then like one day there's like a news article. It's like, oh, did you know that like fucking Krippendorf like made a hundred million dollars? You know, I'm like, oh, that's crazy. But yeah, if you're going to start to build your brand around it, you're going to do Instagram ads. If you're going to do fucking Super Bowl commercials about how you own a bank, like I'm out of here. I'm out. If you're going to pull fucking Rick Moranis out of retirement in right. order to look at the camera and go, hi, I'm Ryan Reynolds, owner of Mint Mobile. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're Deadpool, bitch. Out the window. <laughs> I think if you are famous, you are told that you are valuable and you are a brand and that you right, need yeah. to like market yourself and that like the people want to be a part of you and you believe it and then you buy some shit. And I mean, many of them go bankrupt doing that stuff. So you can root for that yeah. for Ryan Reynolds. It's weird that he's doing that and he's Deadpool. Like he has like an iconic thing on the screen and now he's like trying to get his own Casamigos at the same time. Yeah. And it also feels like his whole brand is like, I'm Ryan Reynolds. I'm making fun of the stuff I'm doing. Like even to the degree that the free guy trailers, right. The free guy trailers have like Deadpool intertitle where it's like from the studio that brought you and then shitty movies. Like now every Ryan Reynolds movie is advertised as if, Deadpool was the head of the marketing department. But also he wants to look us in the eyes and be like, hi, I'm Ryan Reynolds. This is my new lip balm. Go fuck yourself. Be a movie star. Is that not enough? He's he cause he it's because he knows. He knows he's not a movie star. You know what I mean? And now a word like, from our sponsor. <laughs> What if he's like, hey, hey, losers, it's me, Ryan Reynolds. You want to save money on your fucking phone bill? No, too bad. I don't even know. I see. I can't do it. You know, that's his Deadpool magic. You know what I mean? I can't yeah. even be irreverent like he can. So maybe I should take it back. It's it's hard. Well, the, and the real trick is he knows he's being irreverent. Uh, right. We should clarify that it's not that any of Ryan Reynolds companies are sponsoring this episode. Ryan Reynolds himself has bought three ads. He wants us to just promote him that he's cool and yeah. successful. Man, maybe I should buy some Casamigos. You know, Casamigos is classy. Yeah, Look it how is. classy these bottles are. Have none of us had it? I I've had it. Have, I've had it. Yeah. 
I've had but, it. Okay. I tried the Ryan Reynolds gin. It it sucks ass. It's so bad. Well, that's the point, Griffin. <laughs> it's gin that has success. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Why on me, earth did I'm you like try his gin? gin? <laughs> oh. What the Why? fuck? It's called because Aviation American Gin. Yeah. You weren't in the Aviator. Are you Matt Ross? He's no. He's Canadian. And he got married on a plantation. I'm not forgetting about that, All Ryan Reynolds. All of, it. All of it. I love gin. It's my spirit of choice. And I was at a bar and I ordered my usual back when bars still existed 15 years ago. Uh, uh, gin and ginger ale, as you know, is my go-to drink. You do. You do love a gin and, and they ginger, said, yes. What kind of gin would you like? And it was this fucking SpawnCon Instagram culture bullshit in effect. I looked, I saw aviation gin on the shelf. Mm. I went, isn't that the thing that Ryan Reynolds bought? And I went, why not try it? And it, it tasted like fucking cat piss. It sucks. <laughs> and I'm someone who often will say whatever's cheapest. Like I often order my mixed drinks with saying whatever's cheapest. And this was worse than well gin. Anyway, and now, now, I mean, no fucking around. We're, I don't want to do any bits anymore. And now we're from our sponsors, Aviation American Gin. Yes, of course, Aviation <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> it just starts off with a raspberry and it's like, buy it, jerk. <laughs> Why doesn't this taste more like cannabis? Hi, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Katie, Katie. You said you saw this movie recently for the first time. You only have seen it in quarantine. Yeah, yeah. I was. We had some friends who stayed with us for a few weeks as they were between houses, uh, which is a great way to spend oh. quarantine if you have a space for it, because then you don't feel so locked in your house just with the people you already live with. Um, mm-hmm. And what? And they've been doing like weekly like '90s movies nights in quarantine, which is a great idea. So we watched it. Becomes her, which like, like I had seen Back to the Future a million times, all three of them. I had seen Forrest Gump a million times. Uh, like, and it's they were both such like factors of being a kid in the '90s. And this movie, like you were saying, Griffin, just kind of like slipped by me like I wasn't old enough for it when it came out and I didn't have like I don't know who were the movie nerd friends who were like when I was a teenager would have been like you gotta watch this like I think that was happening for people but it just wasn't in my sphere and then I had heard people like coming back to it and like when it had its anniversary no maybe it's 25th anniversary anyway I edited a piece about like how it become a queer classic and I had just somehow never seen it and then it shows up and you're like, I can't believe this movie existed in 1992 or ever in some way. Uh, it's like this miracle that gets like dispatched to you on HBO max now. So it's right there for you. It is. And also, especially as like, you know, all three of us, big Oscar nerds, when you're like this movie, like slam dunk one best visual effects, it was like a cakewalk of like, well, obviously that's the visual effects showcase of the year. No other nominations. Yeah. Right. Like that, you know, right. Like, yeah. I can't reconcile what this movie is. This feels so bizarre that this exists as a Bruce Willis comedy flanked by Meryl and Goldie Hawn that, that is mostly a visual effects showcase. And it's the movie Zemeckis makes in between the Back to the Future trilogy and Forrest Gump. I mean, if you're looking for a deliberate palate cleanser between like a huge trilogy that takes up like five years, seven years of your life and then Forrest Gump, like you could do worse than this. It's a very nice change of pace. But it's the other super odd thing about this film is that like on its face, it seems like, yes, let's make a smaller movie. I just did a big, big trilogy that got increasingly more and more complex. I did Roger Rabbit, which is like the most insane visual effects movie ever made up until that point in time. Why not make like a smaller comedy get back to my roots? And instead, he finds this script 
that's written by sort of like a journeyman writer who mostly had sitcom credits. And he's like, oh, fuck, this premise could be turned into a big visual effects extravaganza. Like all the sort of like Looney Tunes, one-upmanship, distortion of their body shit was all added by Zemeckis, who then brought on David Kep to like rewrite it mm. for mm. visuals. Do you, do you want well all right so my experience with this movie as a kid was that it was oh it was even though you're as you say it was not as much of a cable player it was for some reason always on the british tv channel sky one at least for a while and i lived in britain where where, where? i lived in britain i lived there oh when i was a kid from the age of nine we haven't talked about it in a while but it's true has this come up yeah. It's come yeah. up before several times, mm. uh, and you okay. guys sometimes wow. pretend not to know it. But I did do, live in Do Britain. we do that? It looks like you're still working no. through this. Are you sure? I feel like I would remember if I did a bit about forgetting things that I already yeah. know. He tattooed right. you it on his back, actually, to you not would forget remember this. that you forgot, no. right, yes. Don't remember uh, forgetting this. <laughs> One, I don't know if you remember this, Griffin, or if you had this experience at all. But I, they would play the commercial for this movie all the time, and it would emphasize that in it, Meryl Streep's head gets turned all the way around, and uh, Goldie Hawn has a big shotgun hole in her chest, right? Mm-hmm. And they would just show yeah. the ad, and I would be like, that looks like the most disturbing movie ever made. Like, I would just watch it in horror. I'm like, how is that allowed to exist? And I, you know what really creeped me out was the blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Like on oh, top sure. of all the body horror stuff, Holy just God. how like creepy they look. Right. Like, and so I was really scared of this movie, like until I was basically a grown up. Like, I think I thought yeah. this movie was that that was just a teaser for how fucking demented this movie is. Now, yeah. this movie is demented, but the yeah. body horror, obviously, those are the those are the big, you know, bits of body horror. Like. Maybe sure. I think I must have thought like it just gets wilder and wilder on that front. So, so I was very scared of this movie. Sort of the centerpiece of the movie. Yeah, that's the it's, other weird it's thing. It's the damn poster, like, right? Right. When that shit starts, I'd seen this movie once before. I probably watched it like streaming on Netflix seven or eight years ago. And when they finally start the one-upsmanship, the shotgun through the chest, the the twisting of the head, I went. Oh, so, right, is this just the remaining 45 minutes of the movie is just tit-for-tat, spy-versus-spy, escalating attacks? I forgot that it's sort of like, that's the big centerpiece of the movie, is all the big effects money shots that are then put on the poster that were used in the marketing. And then there's sort of a final, like, denouement chase. Yes, right. It's It's, it's not a long movie. No, um, it is interesting also, like, you have as your virtual background, David, the, the image is now like the cover for all the home video releases where it's Bruce Willis looking terrified, holding a candelabra through the hole in Goldie and uh, has his other arm around Meryl, whose head is twisted backward. Weirdly, they flip their dresses. Yeah, Goldie's always right. wearing red Gold, and Meryl's Goldie has always the wearing red dress. White. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's an odd thing. I don't know why. That image is like, the, the famous sort of promotional image from the movie, but I was digging into it. That was pretty much the overseas poster and then was used for all home video. 
Yeah, the, the, the U.S. Poster. poster is is the potion, right? It's the it's the purple it's potion. It's a potion, and Isabella Rossellini's chest, and it just says, "In one small bottle, the fountain of youth, the secret of eternal life, the power of an ancient potion. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't." Streep Willis Hahn, death becomes her. A very odd way to sell this movie, but but the other way is also an odd way to sell it, which is just like this is a movie about gross things happening to bodies. If like if you're looking for like the depth of the movie though, and I think that's definitely at least like why it's become like iconic for people and for women as it gets, goes along. Like it is about something in a way that like I mean I guess Roger Rabbit is as well, but like you know, and we'll sure. get into this in depth. But like what it hits on about like women and aging in Hollywood specifically is real and like is the engine that drives the whole thing, and it sells the Looney Tune silliness and like the the kind of body horror that's like under the surface, even when they stop doing all the effects stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I know the original screenwriter. I'm forgetting his name. Martin now. Donovan. Martin not Donovan. Not the uh, actor Martin Hap. Donovan. Yeah, I had looked that up. He's Hap. Not Hap. Hap. Not Hap. Not Hap. Hap. Not, Hap. Hap. not, no, mis- no, not Mr. Tenet. Not Mr. Tenet from Tenet. Mr. Tenet. Um, he, I, I think, kind of disowned this movie because he was like, I wanted to make a much sadder sort of satire. And Zemeckis got his hands on it and became all about the possibility of the special effects. And the promotional campaign became so forward with the violence and the body stuff that I felt like he got away from it. But I do think it is the weird combination of all those elements. Like, if you, if you look at this movie's Wikipedia page, it has an entire subsection pretty much just about this movie's legacy on RuPaul's Drag Race. How yeah. often it has come yes. up on RuPaul's Drag Race, how many different drag queens will mention it as an inspiration, follow dressing up on it, that it, there was an entire challenge based around it, they named episodes off of it. And I do think there's something like, it, it's it's weird. The, the, the sadness of the script and the sort of like pointed accuracy of what it's satirizing, uh, combined with Zemeckis's cartoonish, gee whiz, Looney Tunes sensibilities, end up accidentally making this very camp movie. You know, that, that yeah. it shouldn't right. on its face be produced by these people. Right. It, it's like a weird combination of tests, uh, tastes that yes. harmonize into something different. And there are so few movies that fall into that kind of like camp 90s or like gay classic from that era that like are this expensive as this like that are expensive yeah. mainstream blockbusters yeah with like you think about like them. the bird yes. cage which comes out a couple years later sure. but like it's just not sure. on the same scale as this and it's yeah it's again no. about like straight people and like women fighting over a man to some degree but like the way that they stop fighting over him and like team up is kind of subversive in that way like there's not a lot of movies that would fall in them in that direction and it's just like yeah it's campy they call each other hell and mad from the very beginning and wear amazing dresses yeah. and like fight with fireplace pokers like it's like a dynasty episode it is also from this crucial window in streep's career post her first serious decade you know mm-hmm. silkwood sophie's choice ironweed out of africa you know like all you know out right. crying in the dark like casually takes down two oscars and also munches down two in, oscars appears in four different best picture winners Right, I mean, is, Hunter, is, in, is in a bunch of canonical masterpieces. Africa, Kramer versus right. Kramer. Kramer versus, versus Kramer. Kramer. Maybe it's three. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, po- you know, po- then like, it's basically, it's like she devil postcards from the edge, defending your life, death becomes her. Right. One, those are four years in a row. And postcards from the edge is the one that's the closest to being a drama. And even that is a comedy. 
drama. Yeah. And yes. they're, they're four funny movies. They're all good. I would say, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, like agree. she devils, yeah. she devil is probably the most controversial, but the other three are really good. That like, movie rips. I, I, right. No, I know, I know, but you know, it had, yeah. has, has the no, worst I, rep, right. Of those. I, four I movies, always right? thought it, the reputation, I thought it was a calamity and I was like, I might like this, but I'll understand why other people hate it. And then I watched it and I was like, this thing is just good. I don't understand why this was so reviled in its time, but I do think it has something to do with, can I throw it out there? I think Meryl was going through a little bit of an Anne Hathaway thing where people started to resent mm-hmm. how perfect. Mm-hmm. Don't try and impress us. Yeah. You know, come on. Right. We, you're not, you're not funny too. That was the whole thing. No this period, way. Right? It was like right, this the classic Meryl, Meryl isn't funny. Do. Right. Yes, which is which like is it's insane weird. when you see this movie. It's, it's insane when you see this movie. Yeah. Right. And of course it's later insane when she sort of like does Devil Wears Prada, right? You know, well, she like you see this unlocks movie and you're her like, older comedy career. All the DNA yes. of Devil Wears Prada is in this performance. And you look at this, you're like, yes. how did yeah. you let that movie like get treated as a surprise when she's she was really, doing so much of it in this? She's yeah. really good in this. In a way really where good. she's not trying to be funny, I feel like. Not like in a desperate like you don't feel her being like yeah. straining for laughs like she's she will we'll talk about it. but anyway but it's just isn't it interesting griff that it's like that's her little comedy pocket and then yeah. death becomes her being the final one where she's like all right fine you guys want serious shit from me bridges of madison county marvin's right. room right. like one yeah. true thing music of the heart i'm back yeah. to that okay and then adaptation i feel like is what finally unlocks her again where it's like you know what meryl why don't you just have fun? Why don't you do a bunch of different stuff? Like, absolutely. Um, but like, she don't just sort of River packs Wild it all in. in, there, in though. Gets thrown some River Wild. River Wild is the movie she does right after this. I love the River yeah. Wild, but she was again sort of slammed for uh, straying from her lane. Where it's like an action movie, Meryl. Really, like I love that movie. It's a great movie. She's great. I just think she was. She was so prodigious. She came out of the gate so hot. She dominated so hard. And then I do think there was just like people were waiting to find the thing she couldn't do. And you read all those reviews and they do, Katie, as you said, have this tone of like, well, we found it. Here's the one thing Meryl can't do. It's comedy. She's not funny. She tries too hard. Like they all say that. And it's interesting that of those four movies you're listing, the only one that was like really successful financially was this one. Uh, uh, Postcards from the Edge is the only one that gets awards traction. Right. She for gets her. an Oscar nomination, right? Right, but everyone kind of treats it as like, "Why are you doing this comedy thing, Meryl? Move on. Get back to like crying in different accents. Do like, accents, yeah, right. yeah." And and all these comedies, like, I mean, I guess defending her, your life is different, but uh, death becomes her. Uh, uh, she devil and postcards from the edge. I think all play on this perception of her being too perfect. Like they're all right. kind of canny performances where she's playing these very self-involved, uh, image obsessed sort of divas, and people were so fucking against them. And then she comes back and does this again fifteen years later, and people were like, "Finally, what took you so long, Meryl?" <laughs> right. And then she. She finally becomes a box office star, like a consistent box office star for the first time in her career, doing straight comedies for like. And kind of becomes like an iconic, like, you know, 
queen type, you know what I mean? Versus right. like a serious actress. Or, you know, and she like, had to get older to do that though. Like that's she the, had to get that's older to key, do it. And even though it's not like, I mean, how, I mean, honestly, how old is she in this movie? Like, it's not like she hasn't been fucking working. She's in her forties years. I looked, I looked this up at one point. Goldie is really almost 50, which is. Yeah. Cause Goldie is basically Goldie is there with this movie. Goldie's already an iconic queen that we love. You know what I mean? Like when she's in this movie, this is her in the pocket. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and that's all the reviews are like Goldie just fucking runs circles around. Right, they're like, like home run from Goldie, at, unsurprising. Right. right, yeah, of course. Yeah. Like she, she'll She's give you this good. any day. Yeah. Um, Willis, I mean, we got to talk about him in a second, but I just hey. want to. Hey. <laughs> what you you talking about, Willis? <laughs> yes, I, yes. I am what you are talking about, Willis? <laughs> Griffin, in terms of billing, yeah. I just have to bring it up. So the movie begins with a hammer to the face. You know, it's like, to me, it's just like, I gasp at a billing type card like this, you know, uh-huh. a film that begins with the three stars splitting a card. Yes. All in one, you know, not like being billed one after the other. They somehow negotiated uh-huh. that it was going to be the three of them. Now, as you probably would know, Griffin, maybe you noticed this, the movie starts with, Goldie Hawn, Bruce Willis, Meryl Streep. That's the billing. Yes. Yes. The poster reverses it. Yes. The poster is Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, Goldie Hawn. Bruce is always in the middle, as he should be, because he's sort of being warred over. But I I love whatever fucking insane three-day divorce type lawyer oh. negotiation in Hollywood <laughs> with the, the amount of sandwiches that were ordered, the assistants who had to like abandon their families so they could end with like, okay, you know what? Goldie can be top on the movie and third on the poster. Okay. Like, you know, that they finally agreed to that. I am going to blow your mind one step further, David. Okay, please, please. You forgot to mention that the, the way they format it, Meryl and Goldie are on the same line and Bruce is center, but dropped down only on the poster to be clear in the movie. Okay, they are the there. There's three, three in a row, but yes, yes, that is right. true. Uh, I watched the trailer for this movie for a reason. I will come back around to in a little bit. Do you want to know what the, the billing is on the trailer as announced? Don't, don't via tell me. Don't, it's set. don't tell me Willis is first. I feel like Willis is first. Hold on. I'm sure you're right. I think it's Bruce Willis, Meryl Streep, and I'm I'm watching it right now. I'm watching it right now. It's definitely and Goldie Hawn. They give her an and. This is going to give David an aneurysm. It's it's Meryl, Bruce, but you're right. It's and Goldie Hawn. And so that I'm glad I'm glad we decided on wow, this. Griff I felt like all of our listeners were at the edge of their seat for that reveal. <laughs> that was just huge. That was just huge. <laughs> Rossellini, I guess, still, I guess Rossellini just can't muscle into that because even though she's yeah. pretty big at that point, you're you know, no, and it gives you the weird big. sight of. I mean, we got to talk about this opening number where like you see like Meryl strutting down the stairs in this Broadway show, and then Isabella yeah. Rossellini's name shows. I feel like, oh, we're still doing that, huh? Because we're in the middle of this. Right. <laughs> amazing musical number that kicks off the whole thing that like no one ever talks about because it's you know there's all the special effects that come after but like holy shit did alan Silvestri do that who did that it must be i I would assume i mean right this is a thing i'm so glad we're talking about a phenomenon (laughs) that that i I went like this no this feels worth doing a little sidebar on 
blockbuster directors who seemingly have the itch to direct a musical number, but won't commit to doing a full musical. Mm. I, I think of, right, like this is a great example of that. You also have like, you know, little sort of semi-musical numbers and Roger Rabbit, but this is him doing like a big fucking old-fashioned Broadway-style musical number. But also the, it's terrible, this? which is great. Yes. Right, yes. right, right. It's like noises off. It's like also kind of bad. Right. Uh, uh, Spielberg opening of Temple of Doom, which he's only finally, finally making good on now with West Side Story. But that's a similar like, here's my big Indiana Jones sequel. Cold open. Fucking anything goes in China. Right? Right, <laughs> right. Spider-Man 3. Spider-Man 3. Everyone remembers the fucking... Dark Spider-Man disco number. Oh, yeah. But people forget that Mary Jane is starring in a musical in that. And there are two extended sequences of watching her do Broadway productions. Those you see sequences are twice. so weird. <laughs> so weird. Oh, I just my remember God. reading someone's review of Spider-Man 3 and just going like, Jesus Christ, someone let Sam Raimi make a musical. It's clear he doesn't want to be doing another Spider-Man. <laughs> right. He can't stop putting dance numbers into this fucking thing. I like a dramatic descent. Oh, it seems yeah. fun. Oh, yeah. You like, uh, like some stairs? Yeah. Well, it's, it sets up the whole thing where everyone's like, this is such a piece of shit. And it's starting to like, I don't know. Like, there's billboys. Yeah, right. And like, Meryl's got a dress on. And then it's when they That's start doing bad. the hustle. Like, near the end of it, you're like, oh. Yeah. Oh, I get that it's bad. And yeah, the sight of like, Meryl, like, hoofing on stage with people walking out as like, the camera pans back. It's, uh, it's gorgeous. It's perfect. It's gorgeous. It's perfect. And also, yeah, like you say, like, you know, Meryl doesn't do a lot of shit, you know, like, the, like this is some funny, dumb shit. Like, you know, and she's kicking yeah. off the movie with it. And, uh, and it it's works. a preview it's of great. Mama Mia. We'll get there again 20 years later. I mean, but the thing about Mama Mia, which I guess we will we never go do. again. <laughs> no, we're not going to, we, we might do here. We go again. We might just have to do that one, but, uh, I can't, yeah. who the fuck directed Mama Mia? What's, what's her Bill name? Parker. Uh, oh, Al Parker did the sequel, right? He did the sequel. He did the, he did the sequel. sequel. Oh, yeah, Phil, no, it's Phil, Lloyd. Lloyd did the first Yeah, because she, did, the, she just, did Mama Mia and then did the Iron did Lady. She did the Iron Lady, which I, is yeah. my least favorite movie of all time. Um, wow, she had a movie this year. I forgot about that. The people I think it's not out yet. Yeah, it was a Sundance, though. I remember. Anyway, no. um, people liked it, right? Yeah. People were at least that they didn't hate it. It was, they, it was fine, right? I don't know. Um, but Mama Mia is Meryl being like, guys, Look, look, I'm I'm in a, I'm in Greece. I'm singing an ABBA song. Like, just we're gonna be having fun. Like, this is gonna be silly. Yeah. Like, you know, they, it's very much her being like, just everyone relax. I know I'm in it, but everyone, everyone just everyone relax. <laughs> and yeah. this is her being like, guys, this is gonna be wild. Like, I'm dialed up. Like, you know, this is yeah. this is stupid. Uh, which oh, I wait. love. Before we get off of the directors who want to make musicals, Alan, Alan Silvestri also did the music for Captain America, the first Avenger, which has a great musical number in the middle oh, of it. Great little musical number. But that number I know is by Alan Menken. Oh, so right. That's right. They brought four, in the big guns. Which is so good. But yeah. Menken wrote the that star song. The Spangled yeah. Man. I mean, as far as I believe, you know, Z Zemeckis is working. I think, actually, I can't speak to the witches. I don't know what's up with the witches, but... I believe Zemeckis is working on Pinocchio. Alan Silvestri will be working on Pinocchio. Pinocchio is a musical. I don't, you know, the movie. I don't know that the live action version will have songs, but I, I mean, I have to assume it will. Mulan like, didn't seem to think that was songs. important, so who knows? But you know, no what, offense Andy? to the. 
Go ahead. Now, what were you going to say? Make your make your offense to Mulan. I wasn't. No offense to the songs in Mulan, which I enjoy. But like, you know, Pinocchio's got some. It's got some big honking numbers. I got no strings. You know, when you wish upon a star, like these are. Maybe you, you can't. You can't junk Disney those. Card now. Yeah, <laughs> they, they, they like, get rid of that one. Right. I love yeah. a number that honks. <laughs> yeah, hold your horses, David. I'll make a man out of you. Yeah, but the the I think what what I, David and I were both hearing when Mulan was in development was like, oh, this is the big test to see can Disney do a remake that is not that uh, devoted to the Disney film that is able to take a new sort of approach to it. And obviously other X factors at play a pandemic and such, but it does feel like that experiment is going to scare Disney back into do the remake where you do all the songs and everything is similar. And you wasn't Dumbo that too, though. Like it was like a Dumbo like, was also like, departure, but Dumbo yeah. didn't do that well either, yeah, right? Well. I mean, but Dumbo, Dumbo, much like Pinocchio, was made by a veteran director who probably can kind of do a little more of what he wants, right? You know, That's like true. I assume Zemeckis will have some leeway just because he's Robert Zemeckis, he gets you Tom Hanks, you know what I mean? Like, but uh, I don't know, I don't know. Um, death becomes her. What do we want to say okay, about so oh, Willis? The musical number, and then yeah, my start, yeah, single no, favorite no. Meryl comedic moment in the entire film, which is her practicing her reactions to Goldie Hawn walking in before she lets her assistant open the door. Yes. That is so exquisite, and and who's, right off the bat, who's what? Who's playing the assistant? I don't know. It, I think it, all right, it's Mary Ellen Trainer. I'm looking around. I'm pretty sure that's who oh, it was. Okay. okay. Anyway, sorry. And she was funny. Anyway, go go on. You know, Zemeckis comes from comedy. His his early movies were all comedies, and this feels like now he's got the the clout, the stage, the budget, the star power as a director to really make this kind of like elegant, exorbitant. Uh, screwball comedy and just the timing of all of this how much it is sort of controlled by the actors he's got like such fluid camera movements in this which he always has but especially like the first 10 minutes of this movie cover like 10 years it moves so fast at the beginning i mean right the cut is very very funny like the uh yeah you know the the i i have no interest in and you know like that is that is kind of But then you have like another seven years later, like he's just barreling through sort of backstory table setting at the beginning of the movie. And part of what I think makes it work is you have these like really, really sharp performances. You have people who are capable of doing stuff that you don't really see in comedy movies today where things are like all based around improv riffs riffs and a ton of coverage and editing together 18 different angles so every line is a composite of four different shots. This is like, oh, you're just watching 30 seconds of Meryl sitting in a chair, pantomiming how she's going to look shocked until she finally feels ready and makes the hand gesture and lets her assistant open the door. Yeah. And even before that, you get that like, take of like all the audience leaving the show and it all lands on Bruce Willis with this like struck look on his face. And he's so yeah. funny. And Goldie next to him is so funny. And they are like nailing every single bit of it in this really complicated shot. 
Bruce Willis That's the thing. is so, There's so fucking much funny. Of that in this movie, which I love, which is like super complicated camera move, like following a lot of action, a lot of information, and then you land on the final person, and they have to deliver a perfectly timed joke. And that's sort of like super complicated. Like I'm willing to do 80 takes of this to get the one that works. Shit. You rarely get to see comedy directors do this. You need to have made like a blockbuster or four to be given the permission to to waste this much money trying to get that one good take with a crane. Well, now Um, it's so easy to imagine current Bruce Willis, like putting up with that and really like staying on the set for a long time and like wanting to get it right and like diving into his character. So yeah, let's get into this. I kept thinking over the course of this movie, I cannot just imagine the patience that Bruce Willis used to have. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Given his reputation, which we are alluding to as a person who, you know, helicopters into your Bulgarian action movie, like at 10 AM and the copter doesn't even turn its rotors <laughs> off. Like he's, he's going to do his four lines and he's going to get back on the copter. Like, and you're going to give him a million dollars in cash. Yeah. Thank you. It's $1 million per day. He will do eight scenes if you can get them all done in one day. But if it's two locations, then you're going to have to pay him $2 million. <laughs> and you're going to have to pay for a hotel, my friend. Right. Like all this shit. He's so lazy. He just sits behind a chair. He's probably not wearing pants. He's like a guy behind a desk. At the final scene, he lifts a gun up so they can put that on the poster. We talked about this, Griffin. Like, I have to assume that's not true when he's in something like Motherless Brooklyn. Not that he has a big role in that. But right, like that has to be Brooklyn. I think he's great in it. But you know what I mean? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, he's not like, okay, Edward, I'm going to need five million bucks. You know, like he's probably like, sure, I'll do I'll do a nice one for you, you know, once in a while. Right. He's still so like his name still means a lot overseas, which is why people still pay him to do those direct to video movies. Right. 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 And, And I would think the same thing. But. Like there's the the when the Bruce Willis roast happened, Edward Norton told this story about he was doing a, a play and Bruce Willis came and visited him backstage and had like tears in his eyes. And is like, you're the exact actor I wanted to be when I was young and I got caught up. I became a sitcom star. I became an action star. I got so distracted with all this other stuff. Like, I'm so inspired. You've reinvigorated my passion. I want to work with you someday. Someday we'll work together. Just let me know anytime I will be there. And like in the 15 years that Edward Norton was always trying to get motherless Brooklyn off the ground, it was always Bruce saying like, I'll be there. I'll be there. But then he's not in it very much. You have to wonder. He could have shot all those scenes in two days and asked for $2 million. (laughs) It's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's a good part for him though. It is a good part. Like it's the part that makes sense for him in the, in that movie. Yes. I mean, he, I guess he could play the Ock Baldwin role, but like, what you know, like, you know what I mean? Like as the old mentor, but you are not wrong, Griffin, that you can watch the movie and think like, yeah, maybe he wrapped in two, like maybe three. And, and this is why I think that because of glass, like, do you remember how excited we were before glass came out? We were like, Oh my God, it looks like Bruce is giving a shit again. It's Bruce yes. fucking back. And then he's third build. And we were like, that's weird that his billing's so low. And you watch the movie. And for the middle 50 minutes, he's just locked in a room and no one sees him or talks to him. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? He's not bad in glass at all. He's good. Like when he's doing 
acting like when he's playing the yes he's good but i mean i well, love Bruce Willis. I, I do too but watching glass i did the calculations and i was like okay this movie cost 20 million dollars m night self-financed it you would think that he would throw his quote out the window in order to reteam with one of the directors who's been best for him playing an iconic role in a sequel that people have been begging for for years and to be clear maybe he did like, to be clear, maybe, maybe he, did. he did. We don't know. Yeah. To be clear, maybe he did. But I watched class and I'm like, this might have been three days of filming and he asked for $3 million. <laughs> it might have been a thing because M. Night was paying for it that his role was written down because they couldn't afford more days. That's all I'm saying. I just want to say, I want to ask you what you think of Bruce Willis, Katie. And we can oh, talk about him. In general. In general, but I do want to say that last year he was in a film called 10 Minutes Gone that uh, I think probably holds the Guinness World Record for the baldest movie of all time because it's <laughs> Michael Chiklis and Bruce Willis. Like, Michael Chiklis is in this movie. You think they were like, you know what? We don't need Willis for this one. We have Chiklis. We've got a stocky, bald action guy. And they were like, you know what? Now, fuck it. Let's get Willis for a day. Come on. They'll bald it up together. It'll be great. I'm looking at this poster. The third name above the title is a faded headshot of Telly Savalas. Yeah, what if they were like trying to do a bald Avengers and Telly Savalas died and they're like, shit. Yeah, we can't do it. Corey it's just Chickless and Willis. Freeman? Yeah, right. A, a, a uh, bottle of Mr. Clean? <laughs> Delroy Lindo politely declining by email? <laughs> politely, though. Yeah, politely. Like, like I really appreciate it. I'm busy. I'm doing the good fight right now. <laughs> I can't be in <laughs> 10 minutes gone. Katie, uh, hey, what are your thoughts on Bruce? Um, I, I I don't have strong Bruce feelings in general. I'm presently surprised when he's good and, you know, often have seen him be bad, especially like a lot of those movies I've seen the last 15 years. I like in this mm. him playing low status. And I, what I don't mm, yes. totally have a grip on is like, I like, obviously he's got diehard going in at this point. I've never seen bonfire of the vanities or Hudson Hawk. And I don't know what that had kind of done for him at this point. Like, I know obviously there are huge famous disasters. They're two huge bombs. Yeah. So he certainly needs a hit and he got really wrapped for those movies, even yeah. though I don't think he's the problem with either. Like no. at all. I actually kind of oh, like him. Was it Hawk, like a big, like passion project of his, or was it somebody yeah. else's? Yeah. He, he okay. wrote it or he wrote the story. So at least. So he's the problem with Hudson Hawk. Well, he, but his performance is not, sure, but right. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, yeah. Cause yeah, you're, it's a there fair point. Uh, yeah. Katie, that like, yes, die, die Hard's only four years ago. And also he'd been in like In Country, which he got like good reviews, uh, you know, for and like we're not far removed from Moonlighting, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I he's guess still last... a very big star at this point. Oh, no, 100%. Because like last Ooh. year he had The Last Boy Scout, which was a big yeah. hit. You know, I mean, like, say, yeah. you know, so like, but he he's definitely been dinged a bunch coming out of Moonlighting. You know, like he's like yeah. transitioning into stardom and he's been dinged for non-action movies. Isn't the, the music career starting around this time, too? I mean, he's got the weird thing where it's like, you know, he's sort of like a struggling actor for a while. Then the fucking Moonlighting, huge breakout. Sybil was the known person. He was the unknown. And suddenly Bruce Willis becomes like beloved by women and men across America, right? He's just he like, was the Russell Crowe. 
Yeah, he's he, he also like he's a little older. He appeals to older like women as well. You know what I mean? Like he's like a man's man, right? You know, he's like he's just yeah. a little older. You know, Russell Crowe, George Clooney, like those types, the guys who just emerge slightly later. You know what's the right. evidence of his stardom at this point? Planet Hollywood launched October ninety one. Yeah, like that's, that's how you know he's still a huge deal. He he's in the player as himself. You know, like and like the joke is he's a you know he's Bruce Willis the movie star, right? But it is. I mean, Griff, it really is wild. You're looking at his IMDb, I assume. Like, yes, how many fucking bombs he made? Yes. But but here's the weirdest thing. Moonlighting, huge breakout, right? He's the guy. Everyone's like, fuck, this is going to be that rare thing that happens sometimes where someone pops so hard on TV where they're like movie star, right? It's inevitable. It's inevitable. And very often that dooms a person. You have like the Taylor Kitsch syndrome where you're like, this guy seems like a movie star. He should be a movie star. Push too hard. Out of Moonlighting, he does two Blake Edwards comedies that both bomb. He does Blind Date and he does Sunset, right? And so right. I think people are like, fuck, is Bruce not going to translate? It seems like he should be a good like comedy lead. Is he not going to carry over? At that point, Die Hard, for which he was, I believe, the highest paid actor of all time. Even though he was like the seventh choice or whatever. For know. the first Die Hard, he was the highest paid actor of all time. Wow. Katie, it's like a banana story about how fucked up agents and deal making became in Hollywood in the 80s. He, he got five million dollars for it. It may not have been the highest of all time, but he was essentially paid an A-list salary, like a Warren Beatty salary, you know, for like right. a movie, even though he'd never been in a hit movie. As, as seventh choice coming off of two comedy flops, they were so worried because when the trailers would play and Bruce Willis's face would come up, people in the theater would laugh because they'd be like the moonlighting guy in an action movie. So he wasn't on the poster. They redid the poster. And the main poster then was the one that's just the building. And then Die Hard blows up and they're like, fuck, okay, Bruce proved us wrong. I guess he is a movie star. And also he's like kind of a serious movie star. So then you get like in countries doing like a dramatic role in supporting part. You got Look Who's Talking where it's comedy, but it's only voice and it's playing off of his reputation now as like a tough guy. Then tough like Die guy. Hard 2, Look Who's Talking too, And then he's like, cool, I'm ready to go back to comedy now. And then this is this pocket where he's like, I proved myself as an action star. I have my franchise. Now I want to go back to big budget comedy. And it's Bonfire of the Vanity, huge flop. Hudson Hawk, huge flop. Last Boy Scout, solid hit, action movie, like comeback. And the death becomes or finally gets a comedy hit again. And then after this, he's like, I guess I shouldn't fuck with comedies anymore. Yeah, because even though this was a hit, it was not a huge hit. And no. post this, he has the 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 double bomb of Color of Night and well, he's barely in North, but he wears a bunny suit in it. Oh, um yes. and then but he does but then he also does Pulp Fiction that year. So it's like, well, all right. Really even though like maybe he's not yeah. popping quite as much as the other two leads of it, like the other three, but like, he's still, come on, that's huge. Totally Die Hard with a Vengeance, huge. My favorite performance in that movie. Nobody's full, great, small performance. Very good in that. 12 Monkeys, his 12 best Monkeys, performance ever. Love that movie. Uh, he's so good in that Fifth movie. Element. But Fifth Hell Element, yeah. it's Dude. Armageddon, like, fuck. You know. Fifth Element rules. Yeah. I, Fifth I Element just want to go on the record and say, I think that's one of my favorite that's like a major ass porch movie. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. But he, I mean, I love yeah. He certainly, he had a tough time retaining footing throughout the nineties. 
And then the second half of the nineties, he just sort of like ramped up and it was like hit, Big hit, action. hit, hit. Like he was doing well, but he would have like small flops in between. Like he would do like breakfast of champions and the story of us and Disney's the kid and shit like that. But it'd be buffered by like other movies doing well enough in between. Armageddon, and then pretty Sixth much, Sense. Yeah. yeah, right. And the Sixth Sense being the gamble that like pays off so much right. that it makes it all and worth he's, it. Yeah. And he's so fucking good in he's it. He's like, great with Sixth Katie, Sense. your first appearance. That's I right. mean, like, it it's such a good circle. I can't believe I don't have strong Bruce opinions yeah. after the second Bruce Willis. And, and Unbreakable is my favorite performance of his ever. But then it's he just sort of too. like falls off the cliff. I feel like throughout the 2000s, he's like really hit and miss. And then by the 2010s, it's just like, oh, he stopped giving a shit. You have that one year where he makes Moonrise and Looper, and then he goes back to being the laziest actor in history. I know. And even before Moonrise and Looper, he's in Red, which is not a good, a great movie, or but like he's that's that's a real movie. That's a real movie. And he's, he's funny real- in it. Right. I mean, the same year he's in Cop Out where it looks like he, that that's a movie where the helicopter rotors are always going. But like, well, well, no, you he's, know, he's staying around long enough to make Kevin Smith and everybody else on set. Miserable, right. which, like, he gives Kevin Smith a nookie every day. It was in his contract. <laughs> that's the thing. It, like you hear these stories that are like simultaneously. He's so lazy. Also, he terrorizes everyone. <laughs> like, he's lazy, but he's also like committed enough to making people know that he dislikes them. And it's just, it's so incompatible with like the Bruce Willis who seemingly like goes up to the fucking island to like shoot uh, Moonrise Kingdom for scale and deal with yeah. He's like, so good in that movie. He's so good with in that movie. Willis tinkering. Like you're just like, how is Bruce Willis sitting on set where Wes Anderson keeps on going, sorry, I need to adjust the picture frame. Let me tilt your glasses <laughs> right. a little bit. You know, like, how does he put up with this? What what happened? Like where where's the switch flipped where he just becomes completely incapable of ever giving a shit ever again? Like, is it one of those things where he owes a lot of money to Demi Moore? Like, I I genuinely yeah, he wonder about it. Like, has some debt. Like he's like yeah, he is he over leveraged? Like he wouldn't be flying <laughs> like, to Bulgaria all the time, you know? Yeah. Right? Like, is he just is it Planet Hollywood? Like, does he is the mob chasing him? Can we get the man a gin brand? To make him a billion dollars. Good question. Good question. But it also, it's like, even Nicolas Cage, the king of financial troubles, the king of how many Bulgarian action movies can I make to dig myself out of this hole, has now started going like, great, I can like relax. I'm still going to make a bunch of shitty red box movies that don't exist. But also I'll make Mandy. Also, I'll do like Joe. And Bruce right. just hasn't really done anything you could imagine him caring about in the least outside of Motherless Brooklyn, right? And Glass, and Glass. And yeah. Glass. Yeah. In a while. I, I, it's, in, it's in a while. It's basically, before that, it's, it's fucking, you know, Moonrise Kingdom. It's that year. It's Looper. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. All I know is I do love him. And anytime I see a movie like Death Becomes, which I've seen before, but like I just see him being a goof, you know, giving a Mm -hmm. shit, like being physical, making faces like I just love to see it. Like it makes me happy. Like and I wish he'd do it more. And like he's I mean, he's obviously an asshole. I mean, or whatever. He's, you know, everyone's an asshole. Like, but he's, he's I'm sure he seems like a difficult person in many ways. I've never met the man, but he also seems like kind of a mensch, like kind of that Russell Crowe energy again, right? Where you're like, 
this guy's probably the worst if he's mad at you, but like also <laughs> he'll like take get you drunk out with drinks. him all yeah. night, you know, like <laughs> right. he's like friends, you know, he would like pop in on like Letterman and shit and you, you know, and clearly it's like, Oh, he's just doing this. Cause he thinks it's funny. Like, so I don't know, it's man. Always I, so funny on Letterman, like such a good, always Letterman, so funny. Hey, funny on SNL, like you know, you know, whatever. Has a sense of humor about himself, but only sometimes, right? Like between two like ferns that. is great. Mm-hmm. He's oh, like it's one great. of the memorable episodes. He's so good. And this is such a telling performance. Like to be the guy coming off of two diehards and be like, I want to make a movie that's about like I'm very much the third lead, put, right and i'm a limp dick fucking cuck exactly. idiot like you know <laughs> the movie is kind of about the fact that this guy sucks right like the biggest joke in this comedy is that he's the guy they're fighting over the, yeah right exactly the first half of the movie they're fighting over him but then they're like oh 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 forget it uh forget but we him. need you to be our tool for the rest of our lives they're gonna continue fighting yes. for him right and then at the end they're like he should stick around because we need a slave right exactly <laughs> right he looks good though okay he does looks great. come on he looks like the nerdy version of bruce willis which is still yes. looking bruce willis a great look bruce yeah. has done so much for men with thinning hair that's all yeah. i'm gonna say really he has. is an attractive yeah. balding man Woof. yeah Yes, I he should is. go as he I'm going to be him for Halloween. Ooh, just all, yeah. Ben, that's all except horn rimmed glasses, a cardigan. Yeah, yeah. you did it. You're Bruce Willis and Beth becomes her. And some aspirin. All right, you gotta have a I'm drink in your it. hand. It is funny, Katie, as you said. This movie is creating the nerdy version of Bruce Willis. Like, how nerdy can we possibly make this very handsome Viral movie star look? And that look is now essentially the the absolute best case scenario mood board for most freelance film writers. Oh right? yeah. <laughs> like his whole look, the sort of like carefully, like sort of combed thinning hair, the mustache, the retro glasses. Yeah. He puts on a tux and you're like, Ooh, that's what like everyone thinks right. that they look like. I, when they I, have to dress right. Up that's like something. a swipe right on hinge. You're like, sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a time the, the pivotal scene in this movie involves Meryl Streep screaming flaccid at him. And it's, yes. she's perfect. It's My favorite. talking so about his funny. dick. And he <laughs> is like doing this, like, cooped up rage thing but not like the cool guy john mcclain where he's gonna figure it out he's like so impotent and incapable uh he's so good at it one of the best gags in the movie is him he's gonna rescue her before she falls down the stairs and then she says one last mean thing and he's like (laughs) like it just always gets me but but the weird thing about him is on its face, you think you could imagine what kind of performance this would be of like, oh, this is like The Rock playing a nerd. Like, it's like a joke sure. at this point in his career right. that an action movie is playing like this, like, limp dick, like, sort of loser who's being, like, tug of war between two more compelling movie star actresses. Uh, and instead, it's like he seems to be relishing the opportunity to play, like, a sketch comedy character. Like there's no sort of winky, like, look at me. I'm like subverting my movie star persona bullshit here. This is just him going on to like making funny faces. Yeah. He has my favorite joke delivery. I think in the whole movie where they've taken Meryl Streep to the hospital and he realizes she's in the morgue and he's just like in the morgue. She'll be furious. And he's so terrified of her in that delivery and he nails that line so well. It's the so hospital good. scene is so funny. We've got to shout out Sydney Pollock 
one of the great like one scene performers in so many movies. The entire film. My single I mean, Griffin, the entire film. I, I don't know if you saw this, but he was the runner up at the Los Angeles Film Critics Association Awards that what? year for best supporting actor for, for that this? for this Death Becomes Her Husbands and Wives and The Player. They they but like <laughs> You know, husband and wives. He's like one of he, whatever. He's like a, a, he's a, playing a real real character in that. Like that yeah. they were like, but you know what? Let's fucking fold in the player and his uncredited role in Death Becomes Her into oh, our no. little shout out. I would have nominated because he's him so for funny. This performance. He's he's so funny. And and most of this scene is a oneer. Like it's crazy. There are a couple times I'll cut to a reaction shot, but the large majority of his scene in the office is like hammer movements, him in real time, and his fucking comic timing mm-hmm. is thorough. It is perfect. There are so many beats he does. I mean, what what's the the thing? Well, oh, when he checks her with the stethoscope. Right. And he doesn't hear anything. And he like runs to the back wall, throws it out, pulls another stethoscope. <laughs> and then him taking the flask from Bruce Willis. Like I, I always think about, I remember seeing some Sidney Pollock interview where he talked about like being an actor, being in drama school with like all these like hunky guys and realizing like, oh, I'm never going to be a movie star. I'm going to be stuck playing, as he put it, the soda jerk or the friend of the guy who gets the girl. And that's when he decided I should be a director instead because I'm never going to have the kind of like acting career I wanted. That he weirdly went into directing out of vanity by realizing he was never going to be a leading man. And I look right. at just Sidney Pollock's career as an actor, which was very no, much like good. a tertiary thing for him. And I'm like, that's my dream career. As yeah, man. Michael Clayton, like Eyes Wide Shut. Yes. Clayton, Eyes Wide Shut. You're talking, those four supporting performances are everything I want to age into. That's the range of like the worn out guy trying to give you advice, the scary guy who you're not sure whether or not he's going to kill you. So Comic good is the scary doctor. guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what occurred to me? And this feels like it's going to like tarnish this somehow, but you know, the scene in Elf where John Favreau plays the doctor who's examining yes. Will Ferrell, like that had, do you think this inspired him to do that? Being like, yeah, this is the scene where the director gets to come in and have fun with the lead actor and like try not to laugh on camera. Every actor, every director who also has an acting background should play a doctor in yeah. one of their movies. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's not his movie, but Harold Ramis is so good as the doctor in that one scene of As Good As You Get. He's in a couple scenes, but that he's one in particular. I mean, he's great. When he's knocked up for that one scene, like he's another yeah. one. I mean, obviously he's an actor. Yeah. Like, you know, he's it's a- crazy that Sidney Pollock was in Tootsie and then has no acting credits for 10 years until this. Like, I don't know what, and that was what changed. His first acting credit in forever. He was like, I'm out. And Dustin Hoffman asked him to play the agent because like, Dustin Hoffman in his fucking method bullshit was like, oh, I, I need the agent to be someone I'm actually intimidated by. Like, that's the story <laughs> that he begged him to do it because he was like, I, I want to be scared in those scenes. But he's so fucking good in Tootsie. Right. Then doesn't act again for 10 years. Hoffman. Thank you. Uh, yeah, a lot of value that has these days. Uh, and then. Why? What's up? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nothing Sorry. better than a Ben Hosley. Why? What's up? Uh. Yeah, a classic. <laughs> 
Do you think about Sidney Pollock and Meryl being like on the set of out of Africa for like whatever, six months or however long that yeah. must've taken to make. And then coming back to this being like, Hey, let's hang out in a, in a set in LA for a night. And that's my question. It's not like Zemeckis has clear ties to Pollock. And this is right. the no, year it may be that street. everyone's starting to bring Pollock back. So it's like, was Streep the one who was like, hey, can we get Sydney for this one scene? <laughs> Maybe. Or was Zemeckis like, yeah. can you introduce me to Sydney Pollock? Like, I feel mm-hmm. I loved him in Tootsie. Out of Africa is the last Best Picture winner that I have not seen. They're like the most wow. recent. It's one of those things where I'm always like, oh, I should, I should watch it just to kind of check the box. And then I'm always like, Jesus, it's like three hours long. And I'm like, what's it even about? And they're like, well, and I'm like, you know what? Don't even tell me. I don't care. <laughs> Wait, you don't want to hear about this like white European lady in Africa? Yeah, and, get the uh, fuck out of here. I don't care. I'm Ugh. sorry. I know we have a lot more to talk about, but I, I just remembered the big weird aberration in the last 10 years of Bruce Willis's career. What? We need to just acknowledge that Bruce Willis did misery on Broadway with yes. Lori Metcalf. Yes, although I believe it was reliably reported that that production was, I mean, the the, the show itself yes. did not get great reviews, but I think the production was a nightmare. Uh, yes, that's uh, yes. all the weirder that he would be like, I want to do this. Right, he and must have wanted to do it. it. Yeah, she was like, it was a mess. It wasn't theater. It was just like, we did very well because he was a movie star and people wanted to see him in person, but no one was really there for any reason. That material doesn't really translate well to the stage. It shouldn't have been a play in the first place. Like everything about it's strange, but then you're like, he did the full run. It must have been a nightmare to get the helicopter into the the, the theater. (laughs) I I can't imagine. (laughs) And they had to pay him a million dollars a day. (laughs) Which I don't know. You guys may not know Broadway economics, but that is that is a lot for for Broadway. (laughs) Sure. I I googled uh, misery Bruce Willis page six based on what you're saying about it being reported because the finger first gossip anywhere. You found it. Well, apparently they banned uh, drinks with ice in them because it made too much noise. And um, I'm assuming Laurie Metcalf is not the one who is demanding that uh, adaptation. Well, no. Well, okay. Well, there, there's a page six thing that I guess you have not found it, but there was the, the rumor was, and this was reported in page six is that he had an earpiece that was feeding him lines. Oh yes. On stage, like Laurie Metcalf would say a line pause he would say his line, like that it was noticeable that he was being fed lines. Now this was like when it was in previews and the article even says like the script's changing a lot. He's really nervous about it. Like, you know, so like there may have been a reason yeah. for it, but there, that's not the buzz you want going on Broadway. No. You know, is no. like uh, he needs a f- Nori Metcalf to her credit got a Tony nomination. She's, you know, <laughs> she's a pro. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wasn't like, I feel the the Hillary Clinton play was the first Tony nomination she didn't get in a year she was eligible. It's probable. Like I mean, the last decade. Yeah. No, she got a Tony nomination for that. Wow she she's got she's gotten four in a row. That's crazy. I mean, that's hard. It's just hard to do that many fucking plays. And didn't her. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Like not open. Wasn't it didn't that? open. I think it's yeah. opening night was like the night Tom Hanks got coronavirus. Tom Hanks ruined it for everybody. Tom Hanks ruined it. For everybody. That was yeah. That was with I forget who that was going to be. Rupert Everett. That's right. That's right. Um. Anyway, death okay, becomes. So so, wait, 
Can we talk about the hospital for a second and that shot where the nuns are floating down the hallway for no goddamn reason? And it's so yes. funny and I don't understand it or why it's in there. So much it's, visual humor in this movie that's so sure. like delightful. Yeah. So much background detail. Fabio, yeah. the use of Fabio. Oh, that's real uh, Fabio. Holy that shit. That is real Fabio. You know, it's hard. You got to go by the year to know if it's just mm-hmm. Fabio or if, if it's a Fabio type, you know, this yeah. is when it's still just Fabio. Wow. You know, if you've got a, a muscled European with long hair, like it might, if it's the early nineties later, it might just be Fabio. Yeah. Fabio as the bodyguard. Yeah. Um, it, it's just amazing. The, the, the opposite of this episode, the amount of ground this movie covers in the first 10 minutes, where you go from like musical number, them going backstage, I will right. never ever like see him again. The rivalry Their being wedding. established. Right. right, right. Goldie, Goldie overeating, getting institutionalized, hatching her plan for revenge. I always forget that you cut to Goldie like fat and then in a mental institute. I always forget that there's that two minutes right at the start of the movie yeah. and then, and then it's over right. with. And then and we never return to it. are amazing. Like for, they are. I mean, they I are. Mean, I don't know what fat suit technology was at this point. And also I would say the fat jokes have probably aged the worst of anything in this movie, yeah. but yeah. it's an amazing effect. Totally. And, and then you, she gets the idea and then it says like another seven years later, <laughs> like the movie is consciously making a joke about how many time jumps it's made in 10 minutes. Yeah. It's just wild how like, how quickly it's sort of covering a lot of terrain. You have to assume that's where it is losing the audience, losing the critical community. Like now I think people would be like, this is wild. I love this. But like, you know what I mean? Like 92, they're just like, what? No, get out of here. Right. You always feel that tone in those reviews. Right. So then you get to sort of like, the status quo of the movie proper, which is unhappy marriage between the two of them. They've been together for seven years. Willis is drinking himself into oblivion. He's disgraced, no longer doing surgery. Now a mortician and Meryl sort of blooms <laughs> off the rose in her career, obsessively uh, worrying about uh, her, her fading beauty, which is the other area you say, like, what, what are the Zemeckis links? Where do you see this? Uh, where do you see the Zemeckis DNA and him even wanting to do this project? One is the Looney Tunes potential, right? For all the physical sort of back and yeah. forth. Two is, oh, this is another tapestry to try a lot of new special effects techniques because that becomes so much of the juice for him. Is there a new technique I can pioneer for the first time in this movie, let alone multiple techniques I can try, let alone are there techniques that I've used before that I can refine with this material? And then the third thing is, it took me a little while to crack that you can view the movie through this prism. It does fall into that subcategory of perfectionist directors making movies about futile, obsessive quests. It does fall into, even in its weird yes. camp comedy way, like Fincher doing Zodiac, James Gray doing Lost City of Z, these directors who are so obsessed with these sort of like Herculean efforts that they can never quite conquer. It is a movie about like, and especially because Zemeckis is so technical, so visual, is so poppy. The idea of just like, these women are never, ever going to get the physical form that makes them happy. It's, it's just going to be an endless quest in the name of fighting over this shitty guy who, who in and of himself is just like a Baxter. He's just the, ob- he's the 
representation of the rivalry between them. And, and the exterior like, appearances are what they think can actually turn the war in their favor. And I think that's part of how it has empathy for them too. Like it's, it's obviously making fun of the idea that like you can try to stay forever young and how it's kind of a frivolous pursuit. But you think of how so many movies, especially from this time, would like treat women for getting plastic surgery or for like trying to stay young forever. And it doesn't do that. It's not shitty about it the way that you would expect it to be. And that might be what you're saying, Griffin, that like he recognizes that impulse in himself about something different and therefore will treat them more as human beings in pursuit of perfection, which we all want. Much yeah. like the other thing, the other theme is that much like other movies that Sidney Pollack has made guest appearances in, such as Michael Clayton and Eyes Wide Shut, it is a movie about a secret society of rich, insane people who have meetings <laughs> and in, in big fancy houses mm-hmm. that are kind of inexplicable. That's all. Just want to also point, like, just at the end, you're like, oh, this is like an Eyes Wide Shut party. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's just it's kind of a Tupperware party, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's got like right. that crossover vibe. Right, right. Anyway. Also, the party is like him doing the Roger Rabbit thing again of like, how many visual yes. gags can you establish of revealing, oh, this person is actually this celebrity. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. the party becomes, oh, this cult is unifying every tragically young celebrity death or disappearance. And in like right. 10 minutes, he sneaks in James Dean, Andy Warhol, Greta Garbo, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, yeah. uh, Jim Morrison. Like, he just starts cramming them in. Also a very boomer Zemeckis thing to do, right? Like oh, to, yeah. it is a little bit of a we'll walk down memory lane for him. Yeah. It's like, yeah, Forrest Gump preview, like getting all the famous faces right. in the, in the right. background yeah. shots. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, yes. And, yeah. And they're all revealed as if they're Porky Pig and Roger Rapp. Like, they all have that kind of like, kind of like, yeah. Because the minute they start talking about it, you're like, oh, who's it going to be? Who's going to be hanging out in the party? Like making surprise appearances. But yes. So but back to the plot, though. Yes. I mean, the main sequence we need to talk about next is her and Isabella Rossellini. Like that, you know, after all this insane preamble. Right. Right. You see, their marriage sucks. He's a mess. Uh, Then they go to the party. Right. Right. They go. They go to. uh, They go to the Goldie party. Her book party, she's finally written the book and she looks amazing. How did she do it? Can you believe she's 50? I cannot. Goldie Hawn looks amazing. That's all. He looks incredible. And also, uh, Meryl had Meryl also visits her young, uh, uh, bit on the side, young lover, young mistress, and 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 he has rejected her for a younger woman, right? Um, I feel like this movie is before digital touch-ups now most movies with a-list actresses and even with a-list actors uh have like extensive visual effects applied to making everyone look as shiny as possible and removing all the wrinkles and this is before that but i feel like this movie through some combination of makeup and lighting and and you know lenses and uh does a really good job of showing the two of them in the first timeline at the beginning of the movie then cutting forward almost 10 years where you're actually seeing like the appearance of early wrinkles on Meryl. I feel like the movie really wants to make you start to notice where her face is beginning to fall and then how quickly they sort of undo all of that. Mm-hmm. And there's like a little bit of visual trickery, but I also just think it's really good styling on both of them. 
And well, there's a great shot of her like watching her like butt lift like in real time, which I, yes. I don't know what they did for that. I mean, maybe it's a digital effect that it, look, it looks great. Um, and then, yeah, she just looks gorgeous. Can I read the big Merrill quote? Yeah, this is from some interview where they asked her about what it was like doing Death Becomes Her as like her first big visual effect movie because she hadn't really done anything. She says, my first, my last, my only. I think it's tedious. Whatever concentration you can apply to that kind of comedy is just shredded. You stand there like a piece of machinery. They should get machinery to do it. I loved how it turned out, but it's not fun to act to a lampstand. Pretend this is Goldie right here. Oh no, I'm sorry, Bob. She went off the mark by five centimeters and now her head won't match her neck. It was like being at the dentist. (laughs) I mean, it's very funny quote. Like, and it is funny that more people don't just say like, fuck that man. Like, you know, like they, they just kind of whatever put up with it. She makes it sound so miserable. I mean, look, I, I had to do a bunch of this on the tick and it sucks yeah. and it's really difficult. It is as fucking tedious as she makes it sound. And it's very hard to act with any sort of emotion or comedic instincts when you're working around like the exact centimeters of placement and lighting and timing and all that sort of shit. But I also think people have just gotten beaten down of like, that's how most things are made now. You yeah. just can't fight it. This is now acting. And isn't there more ability to fix it in post now, at least like, you know, with, yes. at this point, like they didn't, they couldn't tweak things the way they can now. But there's still, I mean, if you're doing a high visual effects stuff, there's still that sort of like precision where it starts to become more like dance choreography than it does like traditional acting. And you try to fit whatever sort of, uh, you know, energy and, and naturalism you can into it. Um, but this movie is such a wild because it is sort of at the tail end of practical. You have, you have ILM doing CGI, uh, refining a lot of the techniques that they really bring to bear on Jurassic Park. This is the first movie where CGI was used to replicate human flesh. That's like it's big right. sort of like uh, asterisks is that like the all that transformation stuff. It was the first time that had been ever done, uh, sort of organic material via CGI in that way. And, uh, but there's so much stuff that is mechanical, that is prosthetics, where it's like the amount of different devices that were strapped to her, the amount of time she probably had to do a scene three different ways to get three different elements. One time her body walking backwards, one time her head walking forwards, wearing a green sock, one time saying the dialogue off screen while no one was there, like all that shit. It's just one of these movies where like any sequence where any of those things happen had to be so meticulously done. And this thing that I love, that's like the American werewolf of London in London thing where you have to build these big like prosthetic devices for one shot. Like if you want to do the gag of she falls down the stairs and then her neck gets twisted, every single part of that is like an entirely new dummy they had to build or appliance for her. You know, there's one that goes down the stairs. There's one they puppeteer that can get up on its feet. There's one that's her wearing the upside down, like back chest piece, you know, all that stuff. It's just so labor intensive, but it's fucking cool to watch. And that shot of her falling down the stairs is really visceral. Like you, it is yes. worth really. making all those dummies. Cause boy, do you yeah. feel it? Forky was like, what? Like, I mean, was generally taken aback by this movie, which is a weird movie to just throw on now that I think about yeah. it. Like, <laughs> like the first part, you're like, oh, okay, this is uh, okay. I, I'm with this. <laughs> but 
we have to talk about Isabella Rossellini. We have to talk about yes. that scene. It's such a tone setter. It's such a crucial tone setter that the jewels on the boobs are so like, you, you, like one of those like costume decisions. You can't take your eyes off. Like where you're just like, are they glued on? Like what's going on? Like, is she wearing anything yeah, so, under I mean, it? Like I, never. Yeah. She never wears a top the entire movie. She wears a robe over it at the end. But otherwise, she's just wearing jewelry over her naked body she's the entire funny. time. It, it's funny. I am such a sucker for an irritating European monologues at me <laughs> in a ridiculous room. Like, I just, that always makes me laugh or makes me really involved. I, it, she's so funny. Yeah. And it's, it's, she's fancy and European and intimidating and beautiful, but also being really funny in the process. I don't even totally know how she's nailing that tone. Like there's, you know, where she has Meryl guess her age and she gets offended. Like that's an actual joke, but the whole thing is just very like, it's art. It's camp. When Meryl sees the transformation of her hand after she puts the drops on it and she goes, my God. And Isabella Rossellini goes, thank you. (laughs) That of Isabella Rossellini thinking she's calling her a god is so fucking well done but it's such like it it feels very Goldie and and Bruce and Meryl are very heightened in this movie and somehow Isabella Rossellini gets away with seemingly playing it very straight while knowing that she must be aware of where the comedy is and what she's doing yeah, but she's not really pointing at any of the jokes. The comedy is kind of in her being Isabella, Isabella Rossellini and having this amazing accent and being this beautiful and just being kind of present in the world that Meryl Streep inhabits and intimidating her in the process. Right. She's so confident that Meryl just has to buy it. She just has to believe yeah. this crap. And she never breaks the facade at any point, right? Like even when at the end, when like Bruce Willis is getting away, like she's like very cool and collected the whole time, right? Yeah. No, never, never raises her voice, never breaks a sweat. She would um, be a great Halloween costume also. Let's just yeah, all go as death yeah. becomes her. Yo, oh, that would be fun. Yeah. I don't know where we're going, yeah. but on Zoom. On Zoom. I'll be Sydney Pollock at home. <laughs> you have a stethoscope that you throw out for another stethoscope? Yeah, I just keep throwing them out. <laughs> the the reveal of the the potion working by having her boobs like cartoonishly like oh, zap yeah. up is great. The, all of that stuff is great. There's the sort of like, there's like a digital sort of like Vaseline on the lens effect on her face. And then her right. hair sort of gets more volume. The the breast and the boobs tighten the breast and the boobs. Jesus Christ. <laughs> breast and the boobs. Uh, hey. But even, even the, the hand, the hand effect is really well done. The hand effect. Well, that's like mm. just basically the same technology as Marty McFly's disappearing hand. Right? Like that's just like, uh, whatever the name of the technology Classic is it's optical not effect. yeah they make yeah. the one hand disappear but they have the other hand underneath yeah. it that's how they did the effect katie that effect was actually done all in camera they had an actress who was playing the older hand and then they went back in time and stopped her parents from getting together oh, yeah yeah, yeah. And uh-huh. so in real time her hand disappeared on camera and chuck berry and involved yeah yes the younger hand underneath <laughs> that's that's entirely in camera effect but weirdly, Zemeckis doesn't have a DeLorean. He had to borrow Isabella Rossellini's. That's that's the thing. <laughs> you would think it's his. Um, but actually, she was like, oh, you can DeLorean use it. <laughs> um, but then we get to murder. Then we're on murder. I po- mm-hmm. Post that whole thing, we're into murder. We're into uh, right. Bruce being convinced to 
kill his wife by Goldine the in their set. eternal struggle. Yeah. Yes. And then this right. is the big set piece, right? This is all of it. This is right. the head. This is the shotgun. Is seducing Bruce while Meryl is with Rosaline. So those two things happen at the same time. Then Meryl comes back home. He's sort of, oh, did you get a haircut? Yeah. Uh, and then their fighting escalates to the, the staircase. The, just the, the visual of her balancing off the stairs in the heels, like where oh, she's okay. like 45 degrees. Yeah. You know, and she's like, come on, help me. You don't have much longer. Like, like that she has that. Ex- uh, it's like the roadrunner running the up end. a cliff. Yes. Right. It, it's like such a precise balance, but that Frank Taslin kind of thing of like, we are going to build a, a joke out of a, a purposeful denial of physics. <laughs> like we're going to have, like to, right. to nail that thing where it doesn't look like you've done a bad job with wire work, but it looks like this is a deliberate choice to have her defy the laws of gravity and balance on the edge of her heels for slightly too long uh, is so good. You also have that great shot of like where they're talking. Uh, Meryl is watching Goldie Hawn and Bruce Willis talking uh, from the top of the staircase and hears that they were plotting to kill her. And then says she's a has been, and then Meryl's like claws go down <laughs> the banister and scratch the wood. Um, Zemeckis, it, it, like I've noticed a couple movies in a row, uh, a, a lot of Zemeckis using uh, mirrors, and obviously Contact has one of the greatest special effect shots yes. of all time with the bathroom mirror. Yes. And I do think this type of very precise like sort of technically obsessed director often tends to become obsessed with mirrors because of the like economy of being able to frame a shot where you're able to get multiple faces in the same frame all at once. But also with this movie, he does it a lot. And I feel like it's also a reflection of how obsessed these people are with how they look to themselves. Yeah. Not even how they look to other people, but uh, what they see when they look in the mirror. But there's like a lot of that. There's several scenes where there's like a conversation being played out from one angle and you're looking at one person head on and then the reflection of the mirror on the other side. Uh, but yeah, Meryl falls down the stairs. Uh, uh, he calls Goldie. I love just what a fucking idiot he is. I like, know. Goldie Hawn's plan isn't even that good, but at least it's fully thought out. And then he immediately right. does the opposite of what she told him and then fucks up by calling her calls her and and just her doing the thing of like being like you idiot and then then having to retract because she's sort of like well this is the person i've schemed for for years um right like i guess i have to support him in his stupid decisions it's more about her being mad at Meryl than wanting him. Like that, that seems to be what she eventually comes around to when they, when they finally see each other, it's like, Oh, I was just mad at you. I didn't love him so much. Right. Right. He's, he's just like, I mean, I feel like that's the other thing that maybe Zemeckis is keyed into Although the Forrest Gump is the one that comes after this, but the very Hollywood thing of like, is the next thing going to make me happy? If I get this part, if this movie's a hit, if I win an Oscar, and what tends to ruin a lot of people is they just become obsessed with trying to fill the void without ever recognizing that the void is never going to get filled. And it's that same kind of thing where they're like so hung up on the idea of what this guy represents to their sense of femininity and valuable uh, value 
and also what he means to their history. But neither of them really seem to give a shit about this guy much at all. No. Do we know why he becomes an undertaker? Like why he no. they, like they, they like blame Meryl for it, but it's unclear to me why that happens. So my read on it is that he started drinking so much because of their marriage failing. Cause there's that bit where he gets served his bloody Mary and then he picks up the scalpel and his hand shaking too much and he throws right. it. I read that as it's a Macassie storytelling thing of like, he's his hands too shaky to perform on living people. And every day he tests to see if he's, Got it. That makes sense. Yeah. Right. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Not super unpacked. Um, no, but whatever. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So yeah. Now you have Meryl and Goldie in the house and you have uh, 12 minutes of Bobby Z just throwing all the tricks in, in, the, in the bag out on the screen. Just, just a delight. Like this whole thing just rules. It still looks pretty terrific. It really does. Like considering that it is innovating so much of the stuff that it's doing. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. You can see some of this, but like the, the head spin, like stuff like that, it looks pretty fantastic. The only effect that I don't think has aged very well is the one that is most wholly digital, which is Meryl walking with her head on backwards. That's the one that's really like, two different images composited. A lot of the other stuff is using makeup, using clever angles. That shit all looks perfect. Yeah. Like when she bashes Meryl's head down and it's like all her like neck skin scrunched up around like, like a Sharpay. Yeah. Like a Sharpay. (laughs) Meryl's bit of like when, when the neck has been sort of dislodged and she's trying to place it back, but she keeps on falling forward. Yeah. Like she's got this weird prosthetic neck piece, but that's also just physical comedy. That's just yeah. her playing it really well. The, the, the sticking out net bones that terrify Sydney Pollock so much are so yes. cool. They give me the creeps to think about it. Oh, she's got like 12 different neck pieces <laughs> that like are applied at different parts of the movie. There's the one with the bone. There's the one that looks twisted backwards. There's the one that's just like sort of like saggy because it had been stretched out. There's just so much yep. neck shit in this movie. Good neck shit. Um, it is. Who did the makeup on this? I mean, it's mostly visual effects though. Isn't it? I mean, like, yeah, I guess so. No, a, I mean, that's, it's, no, there is. I know. It's funny that it was only even acknowledged by the Oscars for visual effects that makeup was. I mean, like makeup feels like such an obvious, uh, yeah. you know, there's so much prosthetic stuff in this. But um, wait, now, now, now I'm annoyed and now I have to look up what the makeup category was that year. Dracula, yeah, which is huge. Okay. Batman Returns, yeah. which is huge. But then Hoffa, yeah. which I think is more just like old guy makeup. Yeah, there's always Dick one Smith. of those every year. Yeah. Dick fucking Smith did the makeup. Dick Smith, legendary, yeah, that, the greatest makeup man of all that, time. Right. So whatever. I don't know why they ignored him, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the makeup's wild. so cool. They got, they got the best who ever did it. Dick Smith. Wow. Little big man and Godfather and and. I mean, to be clear, this yeah. this movie rules. Like, I mean, it's it's a feather yeah. in his freaking cap. Absolutely. Um, and then, right, I remembered the rest of the movie just being tit for tat, body damage. But then, of course, there's this whole thing where, like, he gets fed up, is like, enough. The two of you can be with each other. I'm over this. And then they realize, like, you know, it's it's this weird arc of, like, it stops being about them competing with each other. They They solve the psychological trauma of 
you thought I was cheap. I tried to get back at you by sleeping with all the guys, taking all your boyfriends. Like they just talk it all out. They have this great heart to heart by the fireplace. That, it's, it's, it's I love that that happens midway through. Right. Exactly. Right. And there's such a good little zemeckis like a, a tiny moment that undoubtedly must have caused so many headaches. It's such a like a quietly complicated visual effect shot. But Meryl has thrown the spear through her. And then it goes through her, hits the couch, Meryl cheers, and then realizes, yes. no, I've only damaged my own couch. <laughs> and Goldie keeps on talking. And then at one point, she sits down on the couch. And when she sits down on the couch, the sphere goes perfectly through her. Yeah. It's really funny. It is yeah, very but funny. that might be the most complicated shot in the entire movie. And it's like a sort of throwaway gag. It must have taken. It's true. There's so many things like that where you're like, God, this must have taken fucking forever. This must well, have that's, a, that's the ass. like Zemeckis having the budget to do comedy with this kind of effects thing that he's doing at this period, right? It's like nobody else yeah. I can think of now certainly would do a gag like that, that it's that complicated and takes that much time and resources. Like it's just, it's all in the service of like money shots and not a joke that isn't even, it's not even like a full laugh. It's like, a, oh, and then, but it's just, it's all part right. of like tapestry. And as Meryl said, that that kind of uh, uh, technical uh, uh, craft is counterintuitive to a lot of how comedy performing works. It is to his credit as a director, even if it was unpleasant for them to do, that he was able to handle both. And especially with three very different movie stars. Very different. I mean, like, I don't know. Has Goldie Hawn, I mean, obviously Goldie Hawn at this point is still just like a, an A-list comedy icon. Yeah. Has she done a lot of, like, I don't think she's really ever no, done anything can't. that would be this convoluted, right? No. no. This came not. out the same year no. as House Sitter, a movie I definitely saw as a kid for some reason. Of course. Ben. Classic. House, House Sitter did have a $50 million VFX bug. That movie is. Ben, Ben, <laughs> you, you saw House CGI. Sitter, right? House no. CGI. You never saw what? House Sitter? No. I don't know. You'd like it. Steven Goldie. Because I love Goldie you know? Hawn, too. It's about a scam. Yeah. Uh, ben, ben, yeah. ben, Ben, you did see House Guest, right? Is that? Who's in that? Sinbad. Sinbad Phil Hartman. Hell yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, baby. If you hadn't seen that, I'd be like, are you not? Ben? Like, you are you an imposter? <laughs> yeah, no, I would never have not seen that movie. I couldn't have, like, dodged that if I tried. Uh, oh, David, can you name the director of Houseguest? Can I name the director of Houseguest? Does Don't my life depend on it? No, I cannot name the director of Houseguest. Why? It's none Tell other me. than convicted manslaughterer Randall Miller. Oh, of course, the, uh, the the maker of The Sixth Man and uh, whatever. I don't know. What else has he made? No, Nothing he's the guy. He, he, he was the one responsible for that horrible incident where the... the uh, like recently. Uh, this is like a few years yes. ago, right? A crew member died on one of his films because they were filming on train tracks without a permit. And they oh, it was the, the Midnight Rider thing with, with, with yep. yes, the Midnight Rider guy. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, he went to jail and has been arguing for his release and now got released. And one of the conditions of his sentencing was that he could never make a movie again. And then he went to like Germany and made a movie about competitive baristas or some shit. Jesus. Right. He's the one who made that, like, he made a wine movie at some point. He made, what yes, is it? One of those shot. wine movies. Yes, that one. He made, there you go. He made the awful CBGB's movie. He's, 
He's oh, one of the worst boy. directors of all time in, in many different respects. Yeah, but I did see House Guests. House Sitter was directed by Frank Oz. Have you guys ever put him on the March Madness bracket? We, we've we talked. I mean, I, he's never been a, a bracket mean, boy, but I mean, he's obviously a candidate. I that mean, would be a really fun run. And I mean, you got to do the Stepford Wives, but it'd be fun. Stepford yeah, Wives would be Stepford fun. Stepford Wives is a fascinating disaster. And in a certain way, Stepford Wives is the thing that completely definitively kills this type of comedy. Like yeah, this type yeah. of expensive, big effects-driven movie star comedy. Bewitched and Stepford Wives are like no. the one-two punch. Yeah. Like in 2004 and 2005. Kidman kills the, it. Cl- the closest things. He's made movies that are close to truly incredible, like Little Shop of Horrors, you know, Bowfinger, Muppets Take Manhattan. In and Out is more like it's a like fun movie that would also just be wild to discuss today. But there, again, there's nothing in his filmography where I'm like, well, this would be boring to talk about because yeah. like even something like no. the Stepford Wives or the score, you're like, well, shit, you know, there's a lot to dig into. So do we have we obviously talked about the hospital scene, which is iconic. Um we there's the shotgun there's like we've talked about all that like i guess the only it's just that that final party scene and the sort of triumph yeah. of Ernest not taking the fountain of sure. youth drink yeah, right? right like because there's that there's that window after he takes her to the hospital he realizes she's dead when he finds her in the body bag uh before goldie comes in where he seems re-enamored with her because she is this medical miracle. Like he starts getting very attracted to her again and falling back in love with her because of the whole like sign of God thing. Um, Right. But then he is able to spray paint her back, shows his value in that way. You have the final sort of cat and mouse chase through the party. All those Zemeckisy look who's still alive gags. Uh, Right. And then he makes that final choice. Now, do you know that this movie uh, uh, the reason I watched the trailer and saw the billing before this, this is like a weird Rogue One trailer where there is so much footage that is yes. not in the final I do Well, because there's there this whole like cut subplot actors. with right, yeah. right, Tracy Ullman being the Tracy big Ullman. Tracy Ullman wow. is the woman that he was going to leave both of them for and she is not in the movie at all, but she has dialogue in the trailer. She was a bartender it, that he went to to complain about what's going on and then he falls in love with her and goes off and marries her. Wow. And like, I get why they cut it. Like there's a whole ending that they cut. That's not even available. You can't even find it on like a DVD or whatever. No, no deleted. Um, no, but you know where that's him meeting her and getting with her. I think it's funnier to cut to his funeral and have the priest be oh. like, and then he had such a nice life. Yeah. And here are his I like think it's funny that we don't see children. <laughs> yeah. Is Tracy Ullman like, in that scene somewhere, like as in like old age makeup, or maybe if, didn't go if to she the is, we don't no. see her, right? Katie, an entirely different ending. The, the, at oh, least they, they reshot the, the ending. Absolutely, because like the audience has hated it. Uh, um, the ending, uh, uh, most directly, the original ending was entirely redone after test audiences reacted negatively to it. The ending featured Ernest after he has fled Lisa's party meeting a bartender, Tracy Ullman, who helps. So it's going to happen after he escapes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, meeting a bartender helps him fake his death to evade Madeline and Helen. The two women encounter Ernest in the bar center 27 years later, living happily as a retired couple. Zemeckis thought the ending was too happy 
and opted for the darker ending featured in the final cut. Ullman was one of five actors with speaking roles in the film to be eliminated. There's wow. like a lot of like big people who had big supporting roles uh, who just don't exist at all. Jonathan Silverman of Weekend at Bernie's, another Porsche classic, I assume, Ben. Hell uh, yeah. Played, played Meryl's agent. Uh, if, are you looking at this on Wikipedia? Can you click on Jonathan Silverman's page and see the photo? Yeah, I, I did <laughs> click on it, and it's one of those iconic, like, has no one addressed this <laughs> images? Where it's like, why is he mid sneeze? Like, what, what is this picture? <laughs> His eyes closed. Yeah. Yeah. Could you oh, click God. on Porsche movies for me? Just tell me what comes up. Uh, it's a, weirdly a picture of Jonathan Silverman sneezing is what comes up on the <laughs> classic kid. Um, oh, I just think it's interesting that like they they tested the movie. The trailer, the first image in the Taylor trailer is big title card, a Robert Zemeckis film. It shows you how big he was at this point in time. That that's the first thing they put in the trailer is like, get ready, it's the new Zemeckis. And then the trailer right. has so much shit that's not in the movie. Not just Tracy Ullman, not just, I think, a little bit of Jonathan Silverman, but also like it has a bunch of pieces from what seems to be an entire set piece of him trying to freeze Meryl Streep and putting her in the fridge. And then she comes out. She's, and she's in her fridge. Ice. Yes. 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 There's like all this expensive stuff that they shot and uh, they test screened it uh, clearly after that trailer had come out. And Zemeckis was like, eh, the movie's not fast enough. There's too much other stuff. Let's cut it down. And then they reshot the ending. Uh, and none of that stuff has ever been released in any form. But the thing is, the ending rules. Like, the funeral the is so rules. funny. The and then so them funny. falling yeah. down the stairs and popping into pieces, as Ben's yeah. uh, background indicates, <laughs> is great. Like, and the movie ending makes, on a joke. Like, how many movies pull yeah. off that, like, having a one-liner? Like, you know, you think of Sound Like It Hot as being, like, the... the yeah peak version but it's really hard to pull off it's a solid button truly mm -hmm. like to go out on very good and <sighs> also it is the rare case of like bad test screening come up with a new ending that is darker the audience hates that the first right. ending is too happy and you are like no. more cynical funny ending that's not the vibe of this movie. Like you got it wrong. Like, yeah, this should yeah. be, this should be dark. Yeah. The audience kind of got it from the beginning. And it's, and it's good that they, that they have each other in a weird way. Like yeah. they've both been fighting against things they can't defeat, but at least they have each other, even though they're these weird, you know, yeah. you know, crack it's ladies. Just, just, the weird sweet thing about this movie is it ultimately becomes a romance between the two of them. Yeah. I would imagine that's also part of it, like becoming part of the queer canon too. It's like these like oh, women 100%. like being like, fuck this guy. Like let's run off. Doing it on their own. Ladies are doing it for themselves. This was a big hit. I mean, it was coming in between mega, mega hits. I would not, I would not call this a big hit. I would, dis I would dispute that. We say it, it made, it made, it made 58 domestically. And its budget was 55. Now, it, you know, it did okay overseas, so it makes 150 worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think anyone Very was like, What did Back to the Future 3 make? Because that was the one that came right before. 3 us, made right? 90. 3 is the one that dropped. Yeah. 3 made like 90. 3 right? is the one. But it's right. still if three had, a lot more than this. Sure. It's yeah. obviously more than this. Like if 3 had made, you know, similar numbers to the other two, they would have figured it on making a fourth maybe you yeah. know what i mean like i feel like three made just or did, no 
they I don't were, either. They were I don't so either. defensive. Yeah, they were. You're you're not wrong. But I'm just but like just imagine if it had made like five hundred billion dollars. You know, you know, like it's sure. just one of those things where at a certain point the studio would be like, well, we got to do something. You know, like. But anyway, but it but did. I was. It, it I was mean, a they have more. weird creative control and kill rights yes, over stuff. But also, I was looking at the box office after we recorded, and two and three were so big overseas. You know, yes. in the late '80s, early '90s, before that was really a thing. Even though three dropped off a bunch domestically, it, did. it pretty much made the same amount internationally. Um, so that franchise was so huge. This movie, a step down, and then his next movie is the third highest-grossing movie of all time to that point. So let's play the box office game. It's a July 31st, 1992. So it is a summer release a little later in the summer, but, and it does open number one, $12 million. So, you know, not bad. Um, Number two at the box office, we referenced one of its sequels on this episode. It's a children's film. Um, It's a sequel. Reference one of it. Uh, yeah, we reference another entry. This is number two. And we it's made thirty-eight later. million dollars in three weeks. Not the kind of gangbusters performance of the first one. Live action. The third one to video. Oh, yes, live action. Oh, it's Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. That kid's big. Definitely saw the they movie can. theaters. That's what I yeah. was doing. It said yeah. death, death becomes her in '92. Yeah. Absolutely, I, an early theater-going memory for me. I had the novelization yes. of that movie, which really shows you how deep I was in. I have seen that movie multiple times. I feel like we rented it a lot or whatever. The only thing I remember is like the kid in the red overalls, like yeah, stomping Playing around. The guitar, you know. Know. Yeah, right. right Terry right. Russell playing the guitar. Yeah, I mean, um, is it good? Probably not. Like, I, I just don't I, remember I, the movie really. I rewatched both of them recently. I think the the first Honey I Shrunk the Kids is underrated. I think it should yeah. have yeah. the same status that shit like Goonies has. I think it's much mm-hmm. better than Goonies or Home Alone. I know people are going to attack me for this, but I think for that era of that sort of like kid adventure movie. It's Joe Johnson. It's fucking well done. It's it's a good no, fucking yeah, movie. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the whole cast is good. The second one's kind of a mess. Uh, uh, right. Randall Kleiser directed Grease. It's just like not the right tone. Um, but right. the first right. one I think is really, really good. Number three at the box office, Griffin, is a film that is, I would say, mostly lost to history. I just want to read the tagline and see if you get it from that. Okay. You ready? Here's the tagline. Some of the best things in life are free, but if you want it all, it all underlined, Uh just say mo. Just say mo? Just say mo money, mo mo. problems. You got it. It's mo money with Damon Wayans, Stacey Dash, the debut performance of Bernie Mac. Wow. Wow. Written by Damon Wayans, right? Movie. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, it's just Mo a Mo Money, classic. not Mo Money, Mo Problems. Just the, Mo the, Money. The Mo Problems is implied. I do believe Mo that Mo problems ensue. Yeah. I do think right. that right. there are some problems, right? <laughs> That's just, the but plot has to be about Mo. something. Yeah. Um, no, Mo, Mo Problems would have been how they built out the franchise. Is his name Mo in that movie? No. His name's Johnny. 
<laughs> would would be cool. I agree with you. Um, yeah, just kind of a like, money. kind of a like, Reese money. Damon Wayans, like in Living Color, is on. Last Boy Scout just came out. Like, you know, yeah. like he obviously, I'm gonna get you stuck and stuff. Like, you know, like let's just let's have a Damon Wayans vehicle, right? Why not? Yeah, and it doesn't really hit. It's interesting that Damon Wayans like made a lot of movies until Jim Carrey became a movie star, and then he kind of disappeared. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, like, I saw Blank Man in theaters fully. Like, yeah. saw that in theaters, thought it ruled. Probably doesn't yeah. rule, but I remember loving it. No, uh, it still rules. It still rules. You Blank throw a boot on a, on a lactic, like, strand to hit somebody, it comes back to you. That's yeah. good. That's just good. Uh, a garbage robot sidekick. He gets a yes, boner. Yes, that should he, right. He lives in a subway station. I mean, of course, that movie yeah, was yeah. like one of my top ten movies when I saw it. Uh, it's directed yeah, by like, Mike Bender, a man does a married man. It is. That's right. Uh, but then, like, after you've got like Celtic Pride, Great White Hype, Bulletproof in '96, where it's like, oh, a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of Damon Wayans movies, and then that is it. Like, he's made yeah. five movies since then at all right. and one of them is playing the hey that's my ass penguin in farce of the penguins oh of course. yeah but he also had a, a show that we yeah, had 123 he, episodes he had my wife and kids you yeah. know that was yeah. right that was his money maker and yes he had my life and kids for many years and he also spent three years uh begging to quit lethal weapon Do you <laughs> please fire me <laughs> Every time yes. he did the interview, they're saying, please let me stop being on this show. <laughs> and then they were like, okay, okay. We won't let you leave the show. We will fire the guy playing Riggs. And he's like, okay, you're going to recast yeah. him. No. Sean William <laughs> Scott will play a new character. He's not going to play yeah. Riggs. This show is called Lethal Weapon. No, he will not play Riggs. <laughs> we're going to hey, kill wait, Riggs, like Riggs off. Little brother? No, just some no. other guy. Riggs dies off screen. Riggs, a character defined by the fact that he is suicidal, <laughs> just sort of dies oh, off screen for unrelated reasons in between. Anyway, um, anyway, number four at the box office, Katie. We've talked about this movie so many times. A movie we will do on this podcast one day. A sports comedy. The Big Grant. A hit. Of 1992. Oh. Little Jack. No. There's a lot of sports comedies in the early 90s. Yeah, but we're going to do it on this podcast. Yeah. No offense to Little Giants, but I don't think it's going to make it. Is it is it an adult sports comedy? Is it for grown-ups? Yes. Yes. Uh, sure. I mean, it's a family movie, but, you know, it's about grown-ups. It is a it's family. no angels in the outfield, if, if that's, you know, like. It's not white men can jump. No, 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 no. For families will enjoy this film. Families? Yeah, it's for everybody. It's, it's about adults, everybody. but a, a broad appeal. It's I definitely a, saw this I, movie it's probably this year. A, a PG, I would assume. Um, and we're definitely going to do it someday. Yeah. Yeah, this director was on our bracket uh, last year. Um, I love this movie. I just rewatched it. I had a great time. Tell me about the stars of this picture. We've got a major female star who is more famous as a singer, but nonetheless, definitely an actress as well. And then we have a male star who's kind of roughing up his image just enough. Still cute. Great supporting oh, turn. Should have been Oscar nominated. Of, 
their own. A perfect movie. I think it's amazing. Literally perfect. I agree. And it has Lori Petty, who, Ben, I assume you're a huge Lori Petty fan. Wait, who? She's She's Kate in Lee Their Own and Tank Girl. Oh, well, yeah, of course. And in Lee Their Own, she's just full of this, I had a poster of Tank Girl on my wall. (laughs) And I'm assuming, Ben, you also had a poster of John Lovitz on your wall? No. Or David Strathairn as the uh, handyman? Oh, yeah. I, I, I had a poster of Lovitz on my wall. No, oh, yeah, you still do. <laughs> uh, League of Their Own. What a great movie. Um, yeah. Big hit in 1992. Penny Marshall, of course. Wow. Number five at the box office. A film best known for the television series it eventually spawned. Buffy Opening this week, a huge flop. Buffy yeah. the Vampire Slayer. Had to be. Had to be. Uh, 1992. Starring uh, Christy Swanson, directed by Fran Rubel Kazui, who is uh, credited on every episode of the series and gets a paycheck for all of them, despite having nothing to do with the series. (laughs) Nice work if you can get it. She essentially got residuals for the rest of her life for ruining Joss Whedon's screenplay. (laughs) For fucking up. Right. Right. He was like, you fucked up my movie so badly that I now need to make a series to try to rescue what I thought the thing was about. Continue to cash your checks. Right. Wild stuff. You guys ever seen it? It's not very good. I have not seen it. I saw it. Yeah. It's all right. It's like, it was it's kind fine. of dumb. Yeah. Jokey. Yeah. Dumb. I knew it existed it. enough that when the show came out, I was like, hmm, that's weird. And then. Right. Yeah, was right. Exactly. Uh, you've also got Sister Act. Here, um, you great got Boomerang. All of these like yeah. great adult um, comedies. Absolutely, you have um, Bebe's Kids, the cartoon <gasps> based Bebe's on the Kids, com- based on the Woo! comedy stylings of Robin Harris. <laughs> Love I it. Mean, had passed away by the time the movie came out. I believe that's right. It had died like two years movie? earlier. Yes, I watched it recently. That movie is fascinating because he was is like good? a great stand-up comedian. Yeah, baby, baby's kids uh, rules. It, it fucking yeah. rules. Written by Reginald Hudlin, uh, who directed Boomerang. Yeah, it's so good and so well animated. But he was a stand-up who was fairly successful. Then he was in the House Party movies. Yes. That was sort of his movie breakout. And then they took this routine of his that was about going on a date with a woman and accidentally realizing he had been tricked into taking care to of babysitting kids. Right. right but it, they weren't even her kids they are baby's kids that's the whole bit is that like <laughs> he's, he's taking care of some other person's kids who's baby what i'm how, sorry how they fucked up so much i'm sorry to be a hack but the 90s are so great <laughs> like this is david. a great box office game david i yes. watched the, the original routine it's so good and every time he drops another Bay Baby's Kids. It lands. Bay <laughs> Baby's Kids. I know there's the it joke. Uh, we don't die. We multiply. Right. Like that's that's yes, the sort of like right. yes, yeah. It's a little stinger. Right. Um, so God, Baby's Kids. They were like, we could make an entire hijinksy animated film about this guy being tricked into taking care of some other person's kids at a theme park. And that's that's the movie. And because animation took so long, they like made the deal with him. They started on the movie and then he died. And the movie came out like two or three years later. And Faison Love plays him because he yep. never even got to record it. 
Yep. Mm. Wild Sad. stuff, man. Uh, you've also got Unlawful Entry, a film in which Ray Liotta makes unlawful entry into someone's home. The home of Kurt Russell and Madeline mm-hmm. Stowe. Adds up. Sounds yep. about right. Yep. Um, and Universal Soldier. Hey, Universal Soldier. That's a fun one. Ben, you've seen Universal Soldier, I assume. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the box office game. What a great, what a great time in America. 1992. Yeah. yeah. Things are going Only great. We knew. There's no problems. Yeah. Right. yeah. Bill Clinton was about to be president and that didn't create any problems yeah. at all. No, no problems there. Right. right. Great time to be a boomer, honestly. Between this, the force comes yeah. coming right down the pike. That's we, we talk about it. We talk about it. It really is. It's great like time. they're just like, this is it. We did <laughs> it. Forrest Gump is absolutely like a ticker tape parade for that entire generation. When when did the millennials get that, man? Did we already get it? And I didn't even realize it. We don't deserve it. And neither did they. I hope we did. All right, fine. America Civil War or something. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to tell us that was actually for you. No, it's going to be like a a GIF or like a vine that has been deleted from the internet somehow. Right. Our epic. Yeah. It, it, make, you're, you're spot on. It's going to be a thread. It's going to be a thread <laughs> with gifts in it. It's going to be a this. fucking listicle. <laughs> oh boy! Great, great. Everything's we great. did it. We're done. We're done. Katie, you're the best in the biz. It's uh, always a pleasure. This is uh, it is my favorite thing to do. Uh, I have been having a great oh, time fun. listening to this series. Also, um, we'll see see how it. See how it goes when the when the going gets tough in a couple of weeks. Mm. But you were asking be us fun. before we start recording, and it's like neither of us are worried. Usually, we're like any miniseries yeah. that's longer than five films. We're You're usually like, type, you know, I'm right. worried yeah. about these couple. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. we're going to make an episode about that. But but all of the bad ones are also just so weird. 100%. What is the episode I mean, airing? Election week? Is it this one? What are you guys doing? Uh, give to contact. Oh, contact. Con- okay. Well, contact. right. No, no, you're right. It's Forrest Gump. You're right. It's Forrest Gump. I forgot it's how Forrest early Gump. election week. Oh, was. Wow. Yeah. That well, works it, out perfect. And the witches yeah. uh, screwed up your schedule, I assume. No, no we we we, we, we had a spot for at it. the end of the series. It's oh, okay. just the yeah. episode. Yeah, yeah. We'll do it in order. Because yeah. West Side Story didn't want to mess up your schedule. Correct. Well, but the witches took its spot. The witches is essentially just going into the West Side Story spot. It it all lined up pretty perfect. Please. Sounds like everything's going just fine. <laughs> I got no complaints. Making this show has been super easy. <laughs> <laughs> you want to ask me? Oh, I don't want to go back into a studio ever again. I love the way we make the show now. Also, the way you do this allows me to be on it more often, which I That's accept true. as a plus. See? That's true. I mean, the advantage, planning. it's opened the door to us doing this anytime. But yeah. we don't have yeah. to do it all the time. And and for example, next week, Forrest Gump it is wild that this guy goes from death becomes her to Forrest Gump. But next week, yep. we'll be talking about Forrest Gump with our friend returning guest, the great Jamel Bowie right. from the New York Times. I like that Jamel Bowie has been writing like amazing op-eds about like the threat that democracy is under. And then was like, I'm watching Forrest Gump. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> God, they got him to take his eye off the ball to watch Forrest Gump. <laughs> Jamel, stop trying to pack the court. <laughs> yeah. We got to talk Gump. <laughs> 
I, I told my dad that we had recorded with Jamel and he was like, how did you get him? And I was like, he like listens to the show and is our friend. Right. <laughs> I was yeah, like, even great. though I was saying it, it was hard for me to not put the stain on it. Like, I think he's smart, but for some reason. <laughs> he literally he said, good us. point, Ben, to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a legit thought leader. And yet yeah. he's giving you guys his thoughts. Yeah, I think wow. you're one of the smartest people in America. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, tune in for that. It's, it's a, a good app. Episode. It's a good app. It's a good app. It just continues to be the only thing that makes me question Jamel's judgment. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and same for you, Katie. Katie, you were the first person where you were like, I'm listening to your show, David. And I was like, oh, shit, this is real now. I listened to all those Phantom Menace episodes um, for some reason. And I was like, I don't know why I like this. I think everyone went through this. We were like, why do I keep listening to this? And then yeah. that's how you got us all. And now it's been like, what, 15 years since that all started? You know, 20? 15 years since the yeah. pandemic started. That's correct. Yeah, no, yeah. Actually, right. Yeah, that's right. Right. No, no, because no, our, our fifth anniversary was this March. So now we're at 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And this shows um, on all of our faces. Absolutely. Uh, no, I mean, we said before, but y- you were you were kind of the first proper guest of Blank Check. Yoshida yep. named the show yep. and you were the first guest on a proper director miniseries. Uh, and then then you're you're in the DNA be, of the very show. You'll be back it. anytime. I will be glad to be a part of it uh, forever. And we, yeah, when Penny Marshall's uh, number comes up, you better bring me back on. I'm just going to be a four well, hour well, later hey. on episode. I, I promise we will ask. We will offer a penny <laughs> for your thought. <laughs> and oh I'm offer boy. only, by the way. So I'm not auditioning for that shit. Yeah, of course. No, no, no. No, offer. Offer only. Um, listen a little gold, man. Yeah. And fighting in the war listen room. I got mad at David like when he came on and never plugged the podcast never that we yeah, have been well, doing for actually 10 years. He's uh, a dummy. Yeah, he's a dummy. He yeah. didn't plug it. So fighting in the war room, also little gold men. Uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Do I plug my Twitter? Do you guys do that? Sure. Plug yeah. your Twitter. You can plug Katie whatever Rich. you want. A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Hey. I listen to the show, but my I follow. often do not make it to this part of it. I apologize. So I forgot the rules. Oh, that's fine. I mean, look, this is the best part. <laughs> we, we yeah, where we're just done. Like, we're just like, I guess. <laughs> where David's like, we got to go. Talking. And you guys are like, button. what else can we talk about? Yeah. There's, it's that, and then it's me going. What did did I forget anything? No, that's a, right. That's all the. We're right? done. Yeah. Past midnight. Thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks, Lee Montgomery for our theme song. Joe Bone Parents for our artwork. Uh, thanks to Ange for Gudo for social media and helping to produce the show. Go to Patreon.com/slash Blank Check blank tech special features or watching the alien movies and doing fun fun bonusy stuff tales from the crypt and the like um go to uh uh blankies.red.com for some real nerdy shit and to our shopify page for some real nerdy merch next week the gumpening and as always flaccid <laughs> flaccid